Wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, is a podcast that discusses sex, intimate and sexual situations, sexualized anatomy, alcohol, and substance use. Naughty language will be used. We recommend listeners be 18 or older, as some content will not be suitable for younger listeners. Individual episodes may contain additional content warnings. Please refer to these at the start of each episode to keep yourself safe. Most importantly, have fun and enjoy. Welcome to Wham, Bam, Thank You, Ma'am, the smuttiest, sluttiest podcast this side of literary analysis. I'm Corinne, and I'm here because I studied media and literature in college, and also, I'm a huge Stucky stan, and I read way too much fan fiction. Andy, why are you here? Hi, I am Andy. I am here because I have been reading fan fiction since I was like 11 or 12, and I have read... Um, so much supernatural fan fiction that my search history, like, I would fight God to keep that from getting out to anyone. That's none of your business. Roxy? Hi. My name is Roxy. I am a mental health professional and a reader of so many romance novels. Uh, I also stream on Twitch. You can find me there if you choose to. I don't recommend it. It's... <laughs> You Way have, to talk yourself you up. You have been warned. <laughs> <laughs> going for the gusto I, right this, there. You're... This interview is going great. <laughs> I'm here to represent the uh, romance uh, novel section of literary works. Um, I'm not really super into fan fiction, but I'm dipping my toe into it. I'm getting there. Oh, it's a big I'm pool. Dipping. I'm dipping. We're proud pool. of you. It's deep and Piggy it's dark. dipping. This is my last episode being all no. All right. So that's who we are. Um, for our second session, technically third episode, we're covering Heartbreak Incorporated by Alex DeCampi. I'm going to read the summary now. From acclaimed comics writer Alex DeCampi, a sexy prose novel about an agency that specializes in breaking up relationships with a side hustle in the occult. Evie Cross had big dreams of becoming an investigative journalist, but at 25 and struggling to make it in New York City, she's finally starting to admit that her dream is her side hustle and her day job is actually her job. That is, until she signs on as a temp for a small consultancy whose principal, Misha Masarov, specializes in breaking up relationships. Misha is tall, infuriating, handsome, and effortlessly charismatic. He can make almost anyone, man or woman, fall into bed with him. And he often does. But the more Evie is exposed to Misha's scandal swirl, the more she becomes convinced that he's hiding something. When a wealthy San Francisco tech CEO with a dissolving marriage starts delving into the occult and turns up dead, Evie has to decide between her journalistic desire for truth and her growing desire for Misha. Content warnings for Heartbreak Incorporated are as follows. Discussions of and references to spousal abuse perpetrated by a terrible person a brief mention of past animal abuse, also by that terrible person, discussions and depictions of sex work, sexual and intimate photography taken without consent of both parties, internalized misogyny, mentions of slash a flashback to general non-consent and a discomfort when boundaries have been crossed and not respected in the past, and blood and gore. In case you're new to the show, we've all read this book, taken notes, and highlighted some of the spiciest sections. We'll be discussing the story and sexy bits, comparing it to romance slash smut fiction with similar themes, setting, tropes, etc. while enjoying the signature drink of the episode. Today's signature drink is Eat the Rich. 
You can find recipes and instructions for the cocktail and mocktail versions of this drink in our Discord and on our social media, WBTYMPod, basically any place you look. Stick around until the very end for a tingling tingler where we read a segment from National Treasure, Chuck Tingle. Now, Mams, what do you think of this book? Oh, God. Oh, by the way, first drink of the episode. First drink of the episode. Cheers. Che- eat the rich. Cheers. I don't have my eat the rich yet, but enjoy Robert Dunny Jr. Oh, that is so good. Oh, my God. Ooh, <laughs> eating the rich is delicious. <laughs> we knew it would be. Yeah. It's a bit, uh, it it's a bit rich. <laughs> oh, I'm going to weird mood today. Y'all are going to have to be the normal ones. I'm sorry. I, oh God, I have to be the normal one. I, Dude, no. I, I'm in a, I'm in a weird mood and this book, holy, uh, <laughs> it's good shit. It's a good book, everybody. I, it is I, a oh good book. Oh my God. Book. I, I'm kind of mad. I liked it as much as I did. <laughs> <laughs> why are you mad that you like the thing it's okay okay you know i'm a romance novel bitch all right <laughs> usually with with some romance novels like they're really long and like they're they're a series and they're complex and like you just you just gotta set aside time you gotta really invest this one book had just it was so good it was so freaking good and there's no more of it there's no more. I don't get that. I'm mad. Well, I think what that means is, Alex, Alex, if you're listening, Alex, if you hear this, if you hear our plea, Alex! write a sequel to Heartbreak Incorporated. Actually... We are begging you. We are on our knees, figuratively speaking, because I'm on camera and I'm not going to get on my knees, but. I might. <laughs> we'll send you a different video of that. But yeah. Hey, yo. That's for the I, extra special patrons. I, I don't, I don't, I don't let myself get obsessed. I don't, but I followed her on Twitter just to see if I'd get an update. And she was like, oh, I'm working on this, this, and this now. And I was like, but what about a sequel? What about Alex? Alex, please. Alexandra, please. I don't know if that's your full name. I'm sorry. Alex. You're one of us. Come on. Never. <laughs> Write it for us, Alex. Never. Please. Give us more, Alex. We need more. So I, I, um, I loved this book, but I am infuriated. <laughs> I also love this book, and I'm also infuriated for a different is reason. A, is this episode of Support Club now? <laughs> <laughs> Are we all just angry about this My name's book? Andy, and I'm fucking pissed. Um, Andy, it's okay to share your feelings here. Don't you be the therapist. You have the sharing stick. <laughs> is this you the, the alcohol sharing the now. sharing stick? Is this... Yes. Yeah, alcohol is a sharing stick. <laughs> Eat the rich. <laughs> Hell yeah. No. Re- rehabilitate the rich. Re- Eat the rich. <laughs> no, I'm hungry. Eat them. I want to I wanna, uh, suck meat off of Elon Musk's bones. No, take that. Cut that out. No. <laughs> because no, I can't be Because want- Misha is one of them. Well, yeah, everyone we gets to save a few. We- <laughs> Yeah, we're saving him. Yeah. Like, I'll say save... You're telling me you're not eating him? Well. We're going <laughs> oh, well there. <laughs> we're going to know that's too far. <laughs> okay. So my issue with the book is that the way this podcast works, Roxy picked our first book. Corinne picked our second book. I'm in charge of picking our third <laughs> book. I don't fucking read books. I don't know what I'm going to pick. Like, just right now. Like, the best guess I have, I have a couple of books that I have to, like, 
test. And then someone recommended a fucking Shrek love story that I'm very tempted by. Um, but I, man, I have to follow Heartbreak Incorporated with whatever I fucking choose. Yeah, have fun following up this one. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> Cheeks. too early. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I picked a good book and I have good taste. Oh, good. You, you should be sorry. I don't um, accept it. <laughs> Suffice to say, I loved this book. This is my my second time reading it. Actually, the first time I read it, it was right before I fell into a deep depression unrelated to the book. But um, so getting to read it was a little bit of a reclamation of the book for me because I really loved it when I read it. But then I could not read for basically two years. This podcast is me at the point where I've been able to start reading again because yay, medication. Um yeah, so I was I was really happy to bring it to the table. It has so many wonderful themes and discussions and eating the rich. And I love Alex as a writer. I'm an, I'm an insufferable fangirl for her. So uh, I stalk her yeah. on Twitter now. I never knew I'd do that to someone. I stalk her anywhere she lets me. Um, <laughs> I, I've got her Tumblr. I've got her Twitter. I've got her AO3. I've got everything. We here uh, at Wham Bam Thank You Ma'am Podcast do not support the stalking of your favorite creators thank you there, there's a thing called parasocial relationships um they're bad and alex is writing a book about that too it's called parasocial and you have one <laughs> <laughs> and i have one with her secretly she doesn't is know is it secretly <laughs> now that we're doing i don't know secret? I, now that we're talking about it i don't think it's secret anymore i think she's gonna know <laughs> We're gonna she's tag just, her when we release this. She's, she's gonna, gonna be know. like shopping in a Sephora or something, and she's gonna see you like your eyes over a makeup counter, like. Alex to Campy. Mr. Campy. Um, no, no, she's safe. We're on different parts of the country. It's fine. You know. Oh, that's what keeps lives. her safe. Maybe this should be the lost episode. <laughs> well, I've lost it. <laughs> We've all lost it. Um, oh. I do know where, what part of the country she lives in because she talks about it. Okay? okay, it's not like it's a secret. What, it's not like sleep? I searched her out. You're something at the window, like you smell different when you're awake. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if anyone ever animates a segment of a podcast, I wanted to be that. I wanted to be this. just. <laughs> Just no, meerkatting I, up. I want to apologize to Alex. Alex, I'm so sorry. I respect you very much as a creator and an artist and a writer. And I just really love your work. I'll leave it at that. We're giving Corinne <laughs> shit, but it really is. It comes from a place of real love. And th you are an incredible creator. And I'm very excited to follow you. Online. So. Excited online. to follow you online. Online. We're not going to stalk you. I can't wait. I'm not going to stalk you. Probably. I don't know how to wink. I'll do it for you. Thank you. We're not going to stalk you. I will obsessively refresh your Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm still waiting for updates on some specific stories on AO3. Um, Alex, I'm just saying, uh, you left with such a cliffhanger on one of them. It's a little evil, but I respect it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, mean, she's been busy. She's been very busy. Yeah, and if you get paid to do something, why would you ever do it for free? Like, not to yeah. be that guy, but... Yeah, yeah. And she's been doing a lot of stuff, and she's been... It, it, yeah, I hope she's getting paid well for it, because... Maybe, maybe stop... She deserves maybe it. Maybe stop everything you're doing and write a sequel to this book. <laughs> maybe? I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe, just maybe, write, write the sequel? Yeah, maybe, you know, if you're really stressed and what's going on, just stop it. Just, just do this one yeah. thing. 
Hey, have you guys heard of misery? Because <laughs> we're getting into misery territory and I'm kind of scared. And I'm the unhinged one. This is the beginning of the episode. Uh, yeah, uh, we promise not to misery you. Uh, we promise. I was gonna tag her and be like when the when the episode came out, but I don't think I'm gonna do that now. <laughs> I don't think what we gonna do? Tag her. Oh, oh, we're gonna tag her. <laughs> no, we love your book. We are kidding. I hope. I, I hope. Yes, I hope you understand that. From from this, you would be laughing right now. Yeah, that's what I think. But obviously, I don't fucking. For those know of you listening, so. they're holding up their books with post-it notes all in them, like a bunch of nerds. There's so many post-its. Don't make that Here, wait. I'll make a. I'm gonna make a sound. That's all the post-its. I heard nothing. Oh, <laughs> I'm sure we'll hear it on your end. Yeah. There, I did it again. Maybe it'll come through. You Touch. got two takes. <laughs> so I think, in summary, we loved this book. Um, Unhealthily, I made it. I made it really hard to follow up on this book, and I'm sorry. You always um, make it really hard for me, Corinne. Ayo. Ayo. You know I do, baby. Yay. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> Psyche, I'm sorry you're in the middle of our romance. <laughs> it's it's okay. You know, could you scoot over on the bed, though? It's kind of awkward. I Can you guys go to your sides, you know? <laughs> Stuck in the middle. <laughs> um. Oh, my God. Just a tangent here. When we meet in Michigan, episode of the pod recorded on a bed. <laughs> Fuck's sake. I'm so mad. <laughs> While we're uh, bullshitting for a second, I keep getting lipstick on my teeth. That's why you see me I going. I can't even see it. Cool. It, I, I saw it briefly, but it's gone now. I licked it off, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. All right. So I think we've summed up our feelings on the book. Yep. Uh, plots. So, the plot of Heartbreak Incorporated, as we kind of, we talked about the summary, um, there's two main arcs. We have the arc that occurs in New York, and we have the arc that occurs in California. The New York arc is really about us learning about Evie, us learning about Misha as a character, us learning about what Misha does for a living, and learning about Evie's situation in life, like kind of learning about she's desperate she's broke she is ready to do just about anything i know right she's ready to do just about anything to to get to her dream basically she wants to be a published journalist and it's bad market for that and then we're meeting misha at the same time who is this incredibly sexy super hot but also really charming and like kind Guy who's running an agency that literally breaks people up for a living, mainly through th- through seduction. Um, mainly. He seduces, mainly. He, they, they do a couple other things, it's mentioned, but it's through seduction either done by himself or by me- one of his many contractors, basically providing evidence so that the other party can be like, they cheated on me. And uh, Evie begins to try to formulate an article uh, on behind the scenes about a specific divorce settlement that's happening because she discovers there's some domestic abuse um, and she wants to ruin the guy who's doing it. She doesn't necessarily want to expose Misha or the agency. She wants to expose this asshole who was abusing his husband and then was trying to use this breakup agency to divorce the guy without fault. And uh, yeah, um, what else would you all like to add Like in that first arc plot? Don looks like a thumb thumb from Spy Kids. <laughs> 
So, uh, with the first arc, I do have to say it really drives in just how dire her situation is. Like, it really... And, and we'll talk about this a bit more once we really delve into it. But, like, the first arc is rough to read, especially if you've been in that situation. If you have been scraping by, she ends up taking a few catering gigs. And she mentions how people don't even look at you or remember your name. I worked in catering when I was getting my master's. And it, ooh, it, it really hits hard just how difficult things can be to be a young adult who has a professional degree, who has education, to get a job and exist. And just hot damn. You usually don't I, I actually that. have a direct quote here. Um, I felt with, I really resonated with Evie as a character here. Um, as somebody who got my degree and then went out in the market and could not find a job in my degree because there was an economic crash. And then everybody who had years of experience were taking the jobs for the beginning levels. And it was just a giant mess. And I worked retail for years, but here we go. Part of Evie, the part that had student loans and rent and a maxed out credit card, had hoped that the gig would be located on one of the law firm's floors. They always had leftover sandwiches from catered lunches, lunch meetings and free sodas in the fridge. If a girl was careful at a job like that, she didn't have to buy food for the whole time she was temping. And then further on, she touches her hair to make sure it's behaving and tries to ignore the rapid spiral of her anxiety. The ad specified executive assistance with a track record of confidential work. The pay is good enough to survive. And wasn't it pathetic that it had come down to that? Anything to survive in New York. So different from five years ago when she'd arrived fresh out of college, planning to see the city on fire with her dreams. God, and addressing yeah. working somewhere will, where you will also get food. Yes. Catering, you don't really get tipped. It's not like waitressing. It's not like um, bartending. Catering, it's kind of rare. Um, at least when I was working in it, in the environment I was. So afterwards, when everything was done, as a young college student, that's what we would eat. And then management stopped it. So a lot of us suddenly were just having to serve people food we could never have. And it's, it's just, I love that she chose this industry. I love that this is, this is the thing she decided to have this character do. Because oftentimes I feel like um, the trope of poor person picked up by rich person who treats them to everything kind of has the poor person not like really in a super dire situation. It's just like living below their means in a quaint, cute way, not, you know, scrounging about having leftovers that were meant for other people. It's it's just, it, it was refreshing the reality of this. And I will say that there is a touch of, so it's mentioned multiple times she has her parents in Chicago. Yep. So she has an out, but especially from like 20 to 30, there's nothing more debilitating than having to call home and ask for help. <laughs> like that yeah. is like the worst case scenario. And in some cases, you know, I'm not going to get into the weeds on it, but a lot of people... As ever, you know, we've lived through how many life-ending crises? A lot of times there's not help at home. So you just kind of have to hope you fucking make it. And I obviously have no experience in New York. But I, I did appreciate that she still loved this city. Mm -hmm. Despite it kind of chewing her up and spitting her out in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I felt like this really gave 
the vibe of somebody who really understood New York and understood living in New York at this level, at the level where you are scraping to survive, where your apartment is so small that the bedroom that you have, you can touch both walls by stretching out your arms. You're sharing with a friend and, you know, the only reason you're making rent is because your friend makes more than you, you know. You're hoping to get food from work. Like, I worked at Target for years and pay abysmal. The amount of times that I was happy to go get my flu shot because you got a $10 gift card when you got your flu shot. And then you could then use that $10 gift card to go buy food for that week with your employee discount and you got like extra discounts on vegetables. It was like, I am I am so far in this hole that I'm getting a flu shot to eat for the next week. I just really connected with that, which is why there's so much fuck capitalism in this book. Well, um, also, I have lots of tabs for that. Something I, <laughs> yeah, for real. Uh, something I loved, absolutely loved that I saw in this book that I haven't really seen in a lot of others. When she talked about how much things cost, she didn't say just the dollar amount. She said how many months rent it would yes. be. And it just. That's so real. <laughs> seeing someone wear shoes for like a few occasions that could pay for like a year's worth of your rent is just a feeling that is so hard to describe. And it, I feel like it's not something that's talked about in books a lot. Yeah. Like, I feel like I don't think I've ever read another book that really went into, in this way, like, what it's like existing in a world where you see yourself and know that you're struggling and hardly making rent, if you're even making rent, and then watching somebody walk by in a pair of shoes that you know, you could go and sell those secondhand and pay your rent for three months. It's the state that we live in it's a very the haves and the haves nots yes the haves and, and the haves and that nots mentality and doesn't go away it's woven into mm -hmm. the book like even in yes. later chapters she does kind of hit it hard with him hey this is where i'm coming from this is this is who i am and she she acts as like a grounding agent i feel like at times but yeah the book doesn't you know Popper to princess. No, no, it, it, it hits home how grateful she is on how hard she works. Yeah. And how she's really, she's in her position through no fault of her own. Like, it's not that she did something wrong to be in this position. It is just the position that not knowing someone, not having the right connections, not having the family connections, not having that immediate in that got you in the place you needed to be. As many times often Evie brings it up that she didn't have the right look and I think some of that is internalized like misogyny against herself how negatively she views herself when she views other people in New York which is very glamorous in its own way a different glamorous than California which is actually covered she didn't have what people were looking for when they were looking for somebody to be a headliner when they were looking for somebody to be that face because um she's described very she isn't described very much, um, but what we do know is that she has unruly curly hair and that she's about a size eight. And I think that's about it. We get in the way of description, which I know both of you wanted to speak on that. She has green eyes. That's the other thing. Oh, she does have green eyes. Yes, she has green eyes. And Roxy, I know in particular you were excited at this characterization. For those of you that don't know, I'm half Middle Eastern and I have very long, thick, dark hair. I am very much not the slim, petite, blonde, like on my mom's side of the family, because because my mom is white. And seeing a character that also it takes 
hours to tame your hair. Like my hair is straight today in a controlled environment. And if I stay very still, it won't curl up. <laughs> and just, just having that struggle represented of having this sense of otherness whenever you go somewhere, feeling like you stick out, feeling like, oh, these people don't look like me and they're not looking for people who look like me. Absolutely. I was I was gobsmacked to read that in a romance novel because usually you get kind of like the Bella Swan thing, like you, yeah. you get the features described and they're very beautiful features. Uh, but she's like, oh, I'm just plain Jane. You don't. <laughs> yeah, you, you hear the description, you read it and you're like, I'm sorry, you sound classically beautiful to me. Yeah, I am like, and there's yeah. the whole other trope of like skinny, but I eat so much, but people tease me for being skinny and like, it's just, <laughs> this was not here. She was actively seen as an other um, and she was very aware of it. And she was very aware of it when applying for job positions. Wasn't expecting that wasn't cool it's reality yeah it is very much reality i will segue off of your bella swan comment the one thing that i had issues with at the beginning of the book that i loved seeing so our main characters evie and nisha um they actually bounce off of each other in a way that they can grow uh we kind of open up with evie almost judging other women yes and kind of oh my god Yes, she's very judgy. And I got notes, girl. you know. <laughs> yeah. Like, I've been that girl, right? I've been like, oh, skinny blonde miss? No, thank you. You know, like, because it made me feel better, I guess, about me. Like, it's a whole thing, right? You were taught to hate, girls are taught to hate girls. AFABs are taught to hate AFABs. However, that's bullshit. And we see mm -hmm. her throughout the book, and I'm not going to get super into spoilers here, but she forms very real relationships with other AFAB people and non-AFAB people in the books that are super healthy and kind of challenge that mindset in her. And you see her grow from that. And I really loved that because it so easily could have been the Fifty Shades, the Bella Swan of like, hmm, you know, that kind of bitchiness, inherent, yeah, yeah, yeah. internalized like bitchiness. I'm yeah. different. I'm special. Um, well, and I actually, I have an excerpt here from when she first sees Gemma, um, mm -hmm. who is one of the people she forms those, that like good complex relationship with. Makes me so mad. Um, yeah. Yeah. She's young, smart, on time, and vastly overqualified. And she manages to maintain her sense of optimism all the way up to the 17th floor and Masarov and Co.'s small office suite. But there's another candidate already waiting, perched on the white sofa under a big, abstract, black-and-white painting that could almost be a Franz Klein. While Evie understood that this wasn't her usual temp gig, that she'd have to interview, it didn't hit home until the competition was sitting right there in front of her. The girl glances up at Evie, brief and disinterested, before returning to scrolling through her phone. She's got blonde highlights and fake eyelashes and a perfect manicure, and it looks like she weighs 120 pounds soaking wet. Evie looks down at her own messy drugstore nail polish and feels her hopes flounder in the storm of the other girl's perfection. And and the funny thing is, later on, as you get to know Gemma, she doesn't, she, she dresses in a way at the beginning, uh, like performative femininity. Um, the yes. femininity you know will get you hired and noticed. Not your own definition of it. Mm -hmm. She, as she works there, she is still very femme. She is still very done up, I guess is how you could say it but in a more relaxed way, in a less rigid, in a less, like that That character really comes into her own, but that is such yeah. a good example 
of two women fighting their own struggles in a patriarchal system, but just mirrors of each other, like going about it in different ways. I just, God, that was a good scene. That was a very good yeah. scene. The day that Gemma wore flats into the office. That's what I was going to say. One of my yeah. favorite scenes is Gemma leaves on her lunch break and comes back and holds up a pair of flats and says, I saw you wearing them and I was so jealous. <laughs> and it's like, yes, that's friendship. Yep. Yep. Yes. Yeah. And they really become friends over time. And it, it starts out as this like very competitive relationship. Each of them thinks, you know, in the beginning that only one of them can get the job. Then they both get the job because Misha is a mess and he needs help. Um, <laughs> we can fix it. We, we can fix him. We promise. Um, but it's, you know, it's so nice to see their relationship evolve over time. And, at, and by the time we get to the end, like they are friends, they are coworkers, they are like in each other's lives. And it was two women that started off fighting because of society, what society expected of them and the way they were trying to combat it. And then they both grow and learn and realize, Hey, we can be friends. We can fight together. And I think that's great. I have one more thing to say about the yes. New York arc. Yes. You will notice she has such an eye for modern art in this. Yes. Like, I wasn't familiar with a lot of the pieces she referenced. However, they were very real pieces. And they have that very, like, modern New York aesthetic when they're described in the book. Uh, this woman knows the fuck she's talking about and i appreciate the shit out of that as like because i have to mention the art right I, yes. I was an art teacher in a past life like three years ago so i have to mention it and it, it was very well done i loved it a lot i will say that is a mark of alex's writing she knows her art she also does a lot of fucking research she will include um just so much information you'll be like damn woman how many things do you know about like <laughs> You are so well-rounded. I'm very impressed. I I find talent and skill and knowledge very sexy. Stop again, being so talented. We're not. Once again, reiterating. We do not we're support not. stalking. We do not support stalking. I'm just saying. Alex, I'm um, so sorry. Before we get into the LA arc, uh, I did want to give uh, the description of Misha that we get. I'm going to do first his voice and then his physical description. Next. Sighs a low, husky male voice from the doorway, the sort of voice that sounds like it should be whispering lazy secrets across linen sheets. There's a small hint of another older accent behind the cool, received, pronounced British vowels, something from considerably further east. And then... She is in no way prepared for the tall figure who slopes out of the inner office like a bored, hungry panther. He's about 30, give or take, and over six feet tall, with the sort of aggressively V-shaped body that is only achieved from spending every spare moment at the gym, and his expensively understated charcoal gray suit is tailored to show off every one of those angles. The suit looks bespoke. Evie would bet that it cost more than her first car. Despite that, Misha looks like he's been partying for the past week. Gold-tinted skin, faded sallow, and dark eyes under the most arrestingly blue eyes Evie has ever seen. The areas around his pupils are ice pale, but the outer edges of the irises are ringed darker. The effect is startling, almost predatory. His hair is dark brown, nearly black, and surprisingly long for someone who works with one of the snobbiest white shoe law firms in Manhattan. It is caught in a low twist at the back of his neck, but a few strands have fallen loose. And Evie watches as he reflexively tucks one lock back behind his ear. It lasts there for approximately three seconds before slipping forward again across his high, aristocratic cheekbones. And then Evie, 
basically says she'd been expecting some sort of grizzled PI type instead of not this pretty boy Euro trash who probably reeks of cologne and wouldn't know a real problem if it bit him in his unfairly perfect ass. She's so judgmental at the beginning. I forgot how judgmental she is. She is. She's so judgmental, Misha, in the beginning. Um, She immediately is like, this Euro trash does not know a thing about suffering. I do like how she grows and she realizes just because you're pretty doesn't mean you don't also have problems. Money can't solve all your problems. Particularly the kind Misha has. (laughs) God, that was a funny line. Yeah. I don't know if that makes me a judgmental bitch, but that's so funny. No, it is funny. It's very funny. She calls Uh, him Euro trash in her... (laughs) You know who I kind of imagined? Um... I forget his name in Parks and Rec, uh, but he like very much goes to the gym all the time. Uh, oh, um, is it Chris? Maybe. Yeah, Chris. I think I think that's his yeah. name. Uh, and Perkins. Yes, that <laughs> yeah, that's Chris. I, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't imagine so much him looking at that as that, but like that, like atmosphere of like, so you get tired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where is all this energy coming from? <laughs> I find it interesting that we all picture different people. I apologize. Continue. Well, I but looking, I did not. I, I imagined him more of like a what's a guy in Vampire Diaries? Um, Ian Summerholder or something. His last name. It's a yeah. All the hot people have different like last names. <laughs> but, um, but like, it's just so it's so fascinating that she just assumes that Western standards of beauty people. Can't have issues also. Her worldview gets changed pretty, yeah. pretty hard later on. But yeah, that's um, who I imagined. Andy, who did you imagine? I mean, I know, but tell the podcast. <laughs> I, I imagined if Misha Collins and Bucky Barnes had a baby. That's what I imagined. <laughs> and mine was specifically Sebastian Stan, otherwise known as Bucky Barnes. That's who I was picturing this entire time. Well, it was Winter Soldier Bucky Barnes or like post-Winter Soldier Bucky Barnes, like Civil War Bucky Barnes. That's what I was picturing the entire time. <laughs> but, but it's just it's just so funny because I did I did yeah. also kind of fall into the trap of judging this book. So when I first mm-hmm. started reading it, I was like, Oh, he's tall and rich and goes to the gym a lot. Next. Because <laughs> yeah. so I feel like so many romance novels, the women are beautiful, but they can't see their beauty, and the men are very yeah. tall and rich and gorgeous, but they just want someone who sees them for themselves. And I was like, "We're doing this again." Perfect. And it's it's such a common trait to also in like romance novels to have the financial fantasy alongside of the romantic yes. fantasy and the sexual ah, fantasy. And, take care of me now. Yeah, and yet this book manages to do it in such a way where it's like. So well done. Like, it blows everything else out of the water. It does. It um, does. I think we move on to the LA arc now, yes? Yes. Okay. Uh, also, though, I do want to say, speaking of how she, like, kind of judges other women. Oh, yes. One woman she doesn't judge, which is really funny in the first arc, in the New York arc, is Misha's sister. And yes. I love that even though she is very, very gorgeous as well, she meets her in a very compromising situation, which humanizes her. So the yes. person you would think is the ideal peak of like feminine beauty, she gets along with. <laughs> because 
because we, of that we situation. meet her naked in an alley. <laughs> no, it's so I, funny. I just kind of realized that Evie doesn't like. She doesn't have that issue with people that aren't her competition. Not yes. that she like already had feelings for me, sure, did you know, did or didn't, but like the sister and her lesbian best friend who I love. Claudia, Claudia. Deserves the oh world. my god, I love Claudia. Claudia. Is so well written, I love Claudia. I want a book about Abby and a book about Claudia. Yes. Please and thank you. <laughs> uh, Abby, for reference, is the HR like representative yes. who hires Evie and Gemma. Um, I sent yes. Corinna text and I was like, I want Gemma and uh, Claudia to get together. <laughs> I think that'd be so cute. Anyway, I apologize. Continue. No, that's all right. It is important to mention that yeah, one of the few people that. Evie doesn't judge is Masha, Misha's sister. Um, otherwise, her name is actually Marie, I believe. I do want to specify that both Masha and Misha are um, nicknames. Because yeah, they're Misha nicknames is for Mikhail, I think. Or something. Yeah, like Mikhail, Mikhail would probably be. It's a thing that happens in Russian, but also probably Georgian in this case, where they're uh, shortened to a diminutive form, uh, Misha and Masha. And so their names that we are calling them are not their actual names. And, and real His quick name, about Georgia, yeah. I, so yeah. for those of you that don't know, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. The line where he explains how he's not from the place of peaches and hip hop, I was like, <laughs> but that's where I'm <laughs> yes, because he is Georgian, as in the country yeah, Georgia. Country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the that has frequently had wars up. with Russia of of independence. <laughs> it just made me so happy. It, yeah. I was as I read this, I'm like, God, Roxy's gonna love this. Yeah, and I Roxy's did. gonna love this book. I did. I guess the very last thing that we should mention about New York before we move to LA is during New York, Evie thinks that Misha is killing people. Um, yeah. <laughs> she very quickly starts to think he's a serial killer because she's an investigative journalist and she starts realizing some weird fucking things, including the fact that a real asshole dies shortly after having a sexual encounter with him and that previous other people who were either targets or clients of the uh, original law firm have died under not necessarily suspicious circumstances, but like of natural causes at a young age, having essentially heart failure too young. And she's like, is this man a serial killer? And she and does, in, in that arc, she does reach out to Nicole. Nicole, we have to mention Nicole before we get to LA. Yes, Nicole, the character, somehow out of all these awful characters, you hate the worst. Like there are so many characters to hate here. I... And Nicole, that. Bitch. We do not like <laughs> Nicole. This is not a Nicole Stan account. Um it's Nicole hate account. But but she does reach out to Nicole, who was the person who she had her last journalism internship with because it's like her last connection. Not because she likes her, because that's the person she can go to. Very dismissive, awful, has a constant rotating staff of interns, which is a red flag no matter where you apply to. Please be careful. I'm not gonna rant about this, but still. But yeah, she reaches out to Nicole and she takes some stuff like photos and stuff she finds around the office because she legitimately thinks he's killing people. Yeah. Originally, it starts as trying to ruin Greg Pickford, yes. the asshole who is abusing his husband. And then it turns into, oh, my God, I think my boss is a serial killer. And so she starts digging more, digging more. 
and providing this evidence to Nicole uh, in the form of a, a Google Drive, essentially, where she's storing information and notes she's taking. So all the while, while she's kind of starting to fall for Misha and Ooh, like learning more about him, Ooh. she's also at the back of her mind, like, is this man a serial killer? <laughs> like, and her best friend, Claudia, who she's roommates with, is like, Girl. do not get murdered. <laughs> so Can we talk? Though. It is. Can we talk about how smart she investigates, though? Yeah. Like, calling... So, Greg Pickford ends up passing away. He's an asshole. We don't give a shit. Okay? She ends up calling the coroner's office, and she's able to get in connection with someone to talk about, like... Russian neurotoxins, yeah. And, and she does the work, and while she finds Misha very attractive, and she's kind of like, he's so kind and sweet, I can't see him as being this murderer... You know how many times I've heard that, though? Oh, they're so charming. <laughs> but she's she has a decent head on her shoulders. Like, I, yes. there, was, there weren't very many points in the book where I just wanted to grab her shoulders and shake her. So that's a good sign. I'm yes, sorry yeah, she, about my lovable idiots, but listen. <laughs> no, they're lovable idiots. Yes. But yes. not on they, the level they were, of Dragon Queen. <laughs> yeah, um... Evie definitely does have a, a better head on her shoulders than the protagonists of Dragon Queens who were lovable idiots. I, I do uh, respect how she was able to look past the charm, the spoiling, yeah. the good looks, and be like, hey, you can't kill people, pal. <laughs> yeah. That might be a deal breaker. Yeah. yeah. Murder, kind of a deal breaker. I'm just going to put it out there. Even when they're bad people? Like... <laughs> Um, yeah, so no I did want to reference that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For everybody not watching this, just listening, uh, I made a big shruggy face and like wiggled my arms around. It it kind of helps, I think. Uh, the Patreon's worth it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If if you subscribe to our Patreon at, um, I believe the lovers tier or higher, you get access to video. I believe uh, I could be. I want you to know number, one of but... our Patreon subscribers reached out to me. And said how much she loved what you have named the level. It's very good. You did a you, good thank job. You. you did a good you job. Did. Thank you. Well, I thought it seemed appropriate. You know, the varying levels. If you're our soulmate, you get access to everything. Save the ad for later. <laughs> it's um, bad if it's all right. So, uh, but yeah, now that we've gone over that. Evie thinks Misha might be a serial killer. She's investigating that. She's reached out to Nicole, an old contact. We go to L.A. The reason we go to L.A. is because they have a new case. The new case is that they have a new target, essentially. Eric Overstreet is looking to divorce his wife, Celine Overstreet. And the reason why is essentially because he's a shallow dickhead and wants a prettier, younger wife. He is a tech mogul, and they got together when they were young. And now he has money and wants someone hotter, essentially. He's been having affairs. He's been having, you know, he's been flaunting around town and Celine is you know an easy target for Misha essentially she loves Russian dancers and while he's not Russian technically speaking and while he's not a dancer he certainly has the body of one and so the plan is for the, the supposed plan that he's supposed to do is to seduce Celine Overstreet and make it so that it looks like she's cheating so that Eric Overstreet can get a fault-free divorce on his part and not lose any of his company in which otherwise he would probably lose some of his company to Celine. And that's kind of why they go 
to LA. However, very quickly, it, uh, even before they go to LA, a couple of things become clear. One, we're getting into the supernatural portion of this book because the Overstreets are known to collect rare books. And the most recent book that they got was a book of hours that is bound in some old looking leather. But when Nisha sees this book, when they're doing their research, he flips his shit. Evie does not understand why. She's like, it's a book. And he's like, looking up star charts and shit. <laughs> and Evie, uh, he like keeps like offering for her to come with and kind of rescinding it. And then she's like thinking about going and then rescinding it. Basically because she doesn't know if she's going to California with a serial killer. And he's like, doesn't want to invite her because it's dangerous. But also he thinks that she could be helpful because there's something different about her. You know, the classic, there's something about you, you know. And that thing about her is that A, she's an investigative journalist. B, she looks past his outer suave persona and does see the real him. And I, she sees the goofy guy. I will say, though, I have had friends growing up in Atlanta. I have had some very, very attractive people in my life. And I will say majority of people I have dated and married, uh, I do consider to be more attractive than myself. And that's not to put me down, okay? There is a huge difference between knowing someone wants you to use you versus yeah. someone who just genuinely likes you. And I like that it's addressed because usually in romance novels, it's just, there's something about you that's different. There's something about you. But he actually does say later on, it's because you saw me as a person. And one of the most endearing parts is when she talks about how he has an ugly ass smile. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like his smile is too much teeth and too much gums and it's yeah. fucking goofy. It's like this. <laughs> she talks about how it made him less beautiful but more attractive. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And oftentimes people get flamed for like being in a relationship where someone's more attractive than them. Both genders get that crap. Uh, men get told it's because you have money. Women get told, you know, oh, they're just using you. When in reality, having a partner that loves you for who you are. Cause no matter what, you're going to get wrinkled. No matter what, yeah. we're all just yeah. going to be, <laughs> listen, things are going to sag no matter what you do, kids. Uh, <laughs> you can only do so much. You uh, you're going to so end up on much. a porch old and wrinkly. But to find someone that loves you for you is the greatest treasure in the world. So I love that they address this. I love that it's, it's not just, you're special for some reason. It's you saw me for me. And that is worth more than anything I've experienced. I loved that. I loved that yes. so much. And I loved his awful smile. Yeah. I love that his smile was fucking goofy as shit. Yeah. Like every time he smiled, she was like, <laughs> she's like fucking goofy she's smile. She's like, that's too many gums. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. classic. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's not that his teeth were imperfect. It was nothing about that. It was just he smiled like a huge fucking yeah, dork. and I love that <laughs> so much. And I love that that talk they have. And I wasn't expecting it for to, like, be fully addressed in a romance yeah. novel. I was very proud yeah. of that. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, so they are going to California. And because, A, Misha is supposed to seduce Celine Overstreet. B, that book. He wants that book and he wants to destroy that book. 
Evie doesn't really understand why in the beginning she's going back and forth on whether she should go. Claudia, her roommate, is like, do not go to California with this man you think is a serial killer, please. <laughs> You're gonna die, and I like you not dead, please. Basically, last minute, she literally shoves a pair of underwear in her purse and goes to the airport, which was the funniest thing to me. It's like, okay. All right, Chief. You thought this through. <laughs> you, you've got one pair of underwear. You're good. You're not going to need underwear where you're going. <laughs> hey, yo. Hey, yo. So they go to California and shit really pops off. We learn many things. I don't know if anyone else wants to take over on the storytelling here, but the California segment is where things really like hot happen. And yeah. I, yeah. And I would say like it's about halfway through the book we get to California. And like the first beginning, the beginning of the book, the first portion, the first half is really like tension and what's going on and what we're learning and learning the characters. And then we get to the second half and it's like a nonstop ride of crazy bullshit in a good way. They set the foundation (laughs) so well. Yeah. But Lord, we needed that foundation. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because the second half is just off the rails. And also I was talking about earlier. I went into this completely blind. I didn't read any of the tags. I didn't know there would be a supernatural element. <laughs> Holy so shit. So you get to California and you're like, what the oh fuck? My god, oh my god, what the? And it's not the traditional supernatural. He's a vampire. It's like some of the most amazing depictions of things I've ever read. And I was just like... Which is why I was so mad at the end. I was like, this is one. There's no series. There's no, there's no more. Alex. Once again, it's not going to knock your door down. Once again, we're cool. We're cool. (laughs) It's okay. I linked you the AO3. You can find more of her work. And let me tell you, there is some supernatural. But I need more of this one. (laughs) I know. I'm sorry. It's not there, but. Alex, Alex, we're there's not, some really good ones. Alex, we're not friends yet, but for my birthday in the future when we are friends, because you write a sequel. <laughs> are you manifesting? Yeah, Alex, be our friend. It's not weird at all. I am manifesting come on, come, this. Come on here and talk to us, Alex. <laughs> yeah, come talk to us. We'll Alex. try talk not to, to just process. sit there so like the intro to the book where like the whole they, time they dedicate it to Roxy, my favorite stalker. <laughs> Sorry, not my Alex. favorite stalker. I'm so, please oh, don't. I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, um, but yeah, the supernatural stuff really starts popping off. By the time you get to the LA, I had happened to flip over my book and I saw a cult on the back. And that from, I hate it, but I was able to use my too many years and too many supernatural fanfics. I had an idea of what he was because he is a supernatural being. I'll just go ahead and spoil that. It did help me to kind of have an understanding of some rules of the supernatural beforehand one thing i want to talk about and it, it it gets deeper into the la there is a slight liar reveal yes plot line and if you're like me that makes your ass itch a little bit God damn it don't say that. it does i'm sorry i watched the bs we see on tiktok this morning and i love she was like this one's gonna make your ass itch and i love her <laughs> so like that's just getting integrated into my vocabulary 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 my age but uh corinne, yes, continue. corinne and roxy both encouraged me they were like it's okay 
it's distracting for all of two to three pages. Yeah. And you can kind of get through it. And I viscerally react to that kind of shit. I'm like, you're, you know, frustrating. Uh, Flames out of my ears. Smoke. (laughs) God, Patreon's uh, burning, worth it. The burning. <laughs> if you haven't watched the Clue movie, go watch the Clue movie. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. I it's love the Clue movie. movie. <laughs> the but, burning. <laughs> can you all can uh, like, you all do that again for no reason? Flames. The burning, the flames. There we go. Got that screenshot. Thank you. Can Perfect. You <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, but yes, so. If, if you're anything like me and that shit makes your ass itch, it's not as horrible as it seems. You can push through it pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just like That's a poop. <laughs> Fuck off. So do we just want to do we just want to get it out there? I, I think so, you should tell us about the California arc, Andy, with all your. Yeah, tabs. I feel like the California arc becomes spoiler territory because. Yeah. So if you want to yeah. read the book, uh, we've laid down the foundations for you. Please go ahead and pause and read it. This is genuinely one of my favorite books I've ever read. They did a very, very good job. Uh, damn you, Pixie, for getting me into this. Um, yep, same. This I is love where. to share the things I love with my friends. Um, <laughs> but yes, uh, if you do not want like major fucking spoilers, yeah. stop now. Because yeah. this is where spoilers start. All Spoiler right. territory. Uh, Are we ready? <laughs> We're ready. All right, Kay. Andy, take us away. So they go to this fancy fucking party at the Overstreet's house. He starts working his magic on Celine Overstreet, and she ends up uh, going and hanging out with these other people. And he actually, a very lovely scene, he asks her consent before he kisses her, because he can do this kind of magic where they kiss on the lips and then they can tell where the other one is, which is really nice. Uh, Here, I have a quote for that. Yep. I'm worried about the crowds, he says. What I started to say earlier, I can make a link between us. So you'll always feel where I am and I'll feel where you are. It's temporary, only lasts about six hours. But I'd feel better if... It's a big house, filled with lots of people. Sounds reasonable, says Evie. I mean, it sounds like it breaks several bedrock rules of physics, but sure, why not? Okay, Misha blushes, his eyes dipping down to his lap again. I have to tell you, the only way I know how to make the link is by kissing. Evie isn't quite sure what her face is doing at this point, but Misha takes it as a refusal. He shifts in embarrassment. I'm not a creep, I swear. I I didn't exactly get an instruction manual when... He bites his lip again, and Evie really wishes he'd stop drawing attention to his mouth. A mouth that he was talking about using to kiss her. I only found out how to do this by experimentation. I'm not even sure if others can do it or just me. So I have to kiss you. Evie reiterates, trying to sound blasé. Yes, on the lips. Evie digs the fingers of her free hand into the thick leather handle of her bag and wills her heart to stop thundering in her chest. Fine, she sighs, if that's the only way to do it. Then Misha's hand is on her chin, gently guiding her face towards him. As he tilts his head to slot their mouths together, he whispers, It doesn't hurt. And it doesn't... I don't take anything. He touches his lips to hers, so soft, and she feels his tongue brush into her mouth. At first, she isn't sure if the overwhelming sparking current lighting her up is the magic or just the act of kissing Misha. She grips the leather of her handbag more tightly. She's not going to moan. She isn't. He pulls back slightly, breaking the kiss, and she fights the urge to chase after him, his lips hovering over hers, so close, 
but not touching as he watches her. As the sense of electricity fades, a tinkle remains, like the feeling after eating a piece of ginger. The feeling moves down into her chest and sits near her heart like it belongs there. While she's thinking about that, wanting to touch the spot with her fingers, she, realizing, she realizes Misha has moved away. There, he says. Not too bad. She's torn between sassing him and reassuring him and kissing him back and, oh my god, she can feel him. She can close her eyes and know exactly where he is. Want more wham, bam, thank you, ma'am? Can't get enough of our sexy voices and even sexier brains? Join our Patreon at the flirt level for only $3. To gain access to ad-free episodes, monthly book polls, and the patrons-only portion of our Discord. Looking for something more? Our one-night stands at $5. Also get episodes one week early and access to our personal reading notes from each episode. We have so much to show you. All we need is a little commitment. Interested? Check out our socials, WBTYMPod, basically anywhere people congregate. Each one will link our Patreon. Can't wait to see you there. So when we last left off, we were talking about the California arc. Um, we had specifically talked about the party that they were going to, trying to woo Selene Overstreet. Uh, Andy, you were the last one who was speaking, I believe, I think. Andy yes. was going to talk about the amazing arc. And also, Andy, what great big eyes you have. I know, right? Andy, so, is there something different about you? Isn't don't there just... flirt. I'm right here. Let me leave. <laughs> you sound like my son. I can't help it. I just flirt naturally. It's true. I do. I feed off of people flirting, so I'm sorry. I'm a big old flirt. So, um, what we end up finding out, I will go ahead and spoil the supernatural spoil, picture spoil. that he is. Spoil us. He is an incubi or an oh, incubus. Shit. So the reason for my uh, costume change is whenever he is feeding, his eyes go pitch black. Now, I'm not woman enough to have full scleric contacts, but I had these and I was like, girls, you know, it'd be fun. And mm -hmm. that's what I'm doing. Love it. So, yeah, Andy currently has pitch black eyes. They don't go all the way across, but they are very good. She is looking Quite sexy, if I may say. Very much like a supernatural creature who may seduce Stop the living. Stop licking your lips! Stop it! <laughs> Never. So, we're at this party. And Misha's romancing Selene Overstreet. Evie goes out to the pool to like try to find some people. I specifically want to talk about these people because of two things. One, the word poontang is used in this book. I've never read that word before. But I'm so glad that I did. <laughs> Second of all, so I have tabs in here for lines that made me laugh. And this is one that made me laugh. So Misha comes up and one of the guys is a gay dude. And he, as they're walking away, like Evie and Misha are walking away, he hears this guy go, oh my god, I want to ride that man like the Pony Express. And Misha, I'll just read directly from the book. Misha stops and glances back to Andy, smirking. Hard and fast and all night long. They're rewarded with the slow crashing sound of Andy falling over in his deck chair. <laughs> That's so goddamn funny. This book is funny. This book is like, funny. Yeah. If, if you are watching, the orange tabs are where I laughed. <laughs> I had that I had that highlighted and tabbed as well because it's really fucking funny. That's so funny. 
also a good time to mention Misha is bisexual. He comes out as bisexual, and it's the three bisexual bitches in this call. I know I really liked seeing a character, like the main character of a book, being like, I'm bisexual very early on. Yes. And it's not questioned. It's not anything like that. It's just like, yeah, he's bisexual. It's well, fucking party. And usually, I feel like it's almost always like the femme protagonist that's bisexual. Yes. We rarely yeah. see a mask protagonist be bisexual. It was refreshing. Yeah. It was, and that's why I'm decked in my bi-pride dress, my bi-pride eye makeup. I am, like, bi-priding it up here because, you know, Misha's bi, and he is not, like, he is out and announcing it, and he's like, yeah, no, I'm bi. Men, women, I like them all. Yep. <laughs> Probably in between, also like them all. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, titties, dicks, all right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's me and that's Misha. Yeah, made me feel yep. good. We we stand a bi protagonist. Absolutely, we do. Misha gets Evie to head upstairs to where this book of hours is kept in a safe. Like he can kind of feel where it is. They're like connected somehow. It's kind of glanced over. I mean, you know, it's not the super- magic, the occult, the yeah. You don't need to know. It's fine. So she goes upstairs and she finds it. In the bedroom of the people that own the house. On the bed is a woman tied, like, bound and gagged to the bed. Like a sex thing. Like a sex, like, kink. Yeah. And Evie's going to get the book out of the, like, there's like a a briefcase safe type thing. She's going to get it out of it. And Eric, the husband, comes out of the bathroom and sees her there. So something we didn't establish with the connection she has with Misha is that they can feel each other and kind of feel the emotions. She is like fucking terrified, and Misha I think feels that. I, correct me if I'm wrong. Oh yeah, but definitely. He, like, feels yeah, yeah. The connection, and he shows up, and his eyes are pitch fucking black, if I remember correctly. And the man shoots at him. <laughs> then I can read this section. Please I have do. it. I have it. Give me the book, Eric says. He's naked under the robe, a protruding belly over a pigeon chest, all covered in sparse dark hair. Evie turns towards him, hugging the book over her heart like a shield. I'm sorry, she tries. I was looking for the bathroom and I got lost. Eric snorts in derision and strides forward. His gun never strays from where it is pointed, at the center of her forehead. His free hand reaches out for the book. Evie shrinks away from his sallow, silk-robed figure, the grasping hand in the black latex glove. She backs up into something hard and for a moment assumes it's the door. But doors aren't warm. Then everything tips over beyond rational understanding. Eric Overstreet's eyes look past her shoulder and widen, and he begins firing the gun, and the bullets should be hitting her, but they're not, because she's been thrown to the side, and there's someone in front of her. And it's Misha, and she watches him take three slugs to the chest and keep walking forward, and she knows she's not hallucinating, because Eric sees it too, and his eyes are terrified. And he's backing up and firing again, but his gun is going click. And Eric is begging, and the girl on the bed is screaming around the ball gag, and Misha backhands Eric halfway across the room, right into a fucking awful porcelain lamp of the rape of Persephone. And the gun bounces out of his hand and onto the rug. Thud. Thunk. And Eva decides it's time for her and the book to get the ever-living fuck out of there, but as she gets up and flees, there's a hand on her upper arm like a band of iron. Misha turns her around to face him, and his eyes are black, all black, like a Japanese horror movie, and he wrenches the book from her, and even as she squeals, no, don't hurt it, 
he shoves her towards the door and orders, walk out of here. And then he is ripping the book apart, throwing the, its pages into the fire. And it's like voices in harmonic chorus are screaming in her brain. She sees blood begin to drip from the book's torn spine and thick and dark. She runs. So a couple of things I kind of glanced over. One, it is established that people can see into the blinds of the bedroom. Mm. Remember that for later. That is an important plot point. Second, the book starts kind of not talking to Evie, but kind of manipulating. Manipulating. Yes. yes. She kind of starts thinking things without her consent of like, I could just kill this girl and get the book. You know, it it kind of does what the Oculus Mirror does. It like makes you think a certain way, whether you intend to think that way or not, obviously. So she gets the book. She loses like 15, 20 minutes of time, I think. Yeah, just kind of sitting there reading the book, thinking about literally murdering the girl on the bed. Yeah. So Misha comes, saves her. He burns the book. She sees the book bleeding. Yucky. <laughs> Bad vibes. So she gets the fuck out. And as she's leaving, Misha is a, like, she takes his car. Misha's able to catch up with her. And it starts to come out some of his abilities. They kind of talk about it. Um, they go back to this hotel. And I kind of have a blank space in my memory what happened here. It was, oh, he wanted to leave because when the book was destroyed, that magic had to go somewhere. And he's the nearest magical, like, creature thing. So it kind of went all in him. So he can't all the way control himself right now. So he takes the car and leaves the hotel after he drops her off. And she finds him in a club, like, dancing with people provocatively. Corinne would like to read it for you. Then there is a momentary shift in the tide of the dance floor, and Evie sees Misha. His golden-tinged skin glows against his thin black t-shirt, a v-neck that clings to every cut and curve of that turbocharged body, those leather jeans that might as well be sprayed on. He's kissing a girl. As their positions shift, Evie can see that he has a thin scarf tied, tied over his eyes. He's blindfolded. The handsome black man is still grinding against Misha's back, Misha leaning into it, running his hands down the man's thigh, lips parted breathlessly. Then the man turns Misha around and cups his face in his hands, smiling almost triumphantly. Misha places his hands over the man's ass, pulling him closer so that one of Misha's thick, muscular thighs goes between his legs. The man tips his head back in shuddering pleasure, then leans in and kisses Misha hard and hungry. Evie can only stand and watch, making a vague attempt to rock to the beat. She is wet and restless, violently turned on, and she has been since she walked onto the dance floor and saw him. Misha playfully puts a hand on his current partner's lips, then reconsiders, snatching one last kiss, and sends him back into the crowd. The girl next to Evie starts forward, her eyes fixed on Misha with a fierce determination. But Evie mashes her heel down on the top of the woman's foot and neatly steps in front of her into Misha's arms. She feels electric. The heavy bass beat of the music traveling up into her crotch, the buzzing louder now, a throbbing hum of excitement rocketing through her. He is everything she imagined. He runs his hands up from her waist to frame her chest, so many her breasts that her nipples ache with the need for him to run his thumbs over them. She's insanely hot. Her whole body a live wire. She thinks she, she'll come up just from him kissing her. It's too much. And he's bending his face down, tilting it slightly in that way he does. And he sighs. Slightly. As he opens his lips and moves towards her. Just as their lips touch and the electric current completes. Sending bolts of pure ecstasy through her. She can't help it. She moans and whispers his name. 
and it's like she's pulled a pin on a grenade. Misha's body tenses in horror and he yanks away from her, pulling off his blindfold. He grabs her and strides away towards the door, hauling her through the crowd after him, his hand like steel around her arm, and it hurts. So I don't want to compare and contrast because we have two very different books that we've read so far. Mm -hmm. Yes. The non-consensual moment, I feel like, was handled much better in this book. Mm -hmm. Because that's a tricky situation, right? Because you could argue that there's implied consent for people around him. Yeah. However, implied consent is not consent. Yeah. Um, and so when she kisses him and she or he hears her voice immediately he's like that's not fucking cool what the hell and he pulls her outside and they talk about it yeah because he was as we learn feeding as an incubus he was feeding off the sexual energy in the room the energy in the room and that was not something he wanted to take from her her inserting herself into this was non-consensual even though he was out there essentially for the taking it wasn't for her it was for people he didn't know because he didn't want to take from her. And he told her to stay home and rest. And instead she followed him. And they immediately hashed that out. Um, he is not having any of that. No. Because he is more than his... Like, he is allowed... Okay. There's kind of an overarching thing with Misha where he very much is like, well, everyone uses my body anyway. I forget that I'm not just something to be used which that line, I was just like, oh, buddy. Oh, fella. Oh. Oh. But my heart. He kind of goes. out of tabs, I have that say, my heart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My heart on. Um, so <laughs> Roxy's giving me the best grumpy face. I love it so much. It's her little squirrel grumpy face. Like, mm. y'all make me give wrinkles, I swear. <laughs> Join the That's cup. what I'm here for, to give you wrinkles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're sealing our youth, sorry. <laughs> but he kind of goes through this thing where he realizes that Evie... And, like, we've glossed over a lot of their, like, like emotional buildup as friends. Yeah. Uh, but Evie genuinely sees him as a person. I think, Roxy, you were talking about it earlier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They genuinely have a real connection. And so he's able to kind of not be an object around her. So when he's feeding and he is objectifying himself, he doesn't want her mixed up in that period yeah. yeah yeah so the next morning the next morning we get some pew, pew, bombs dropped so yes, we uh we mentioned earlier that masha is misha's twin sister and that they hang out and like they go shopping together they have a lot of nice genuine interactions She's just, she's, she's, I wrote in my notes and I feel bad for it because I don't think Twilight was handled very well, but she does very much give me like the Alice Cullen vibes to yes, the Edward. Yes, does. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the like fun, accepting, loving person who's in this world, but not scary, kind of like a mediator, uh, a person to tell the main character, it's going to be okay. This person doesn't hate you. It's all right. Uh, so That's she wakes fun. up. Yeah. She wakes up and Masha's there and she's come with them on this trip. And they get to talking because something we didn't mention is Evie says she's going to leave. 
she says this is too much for her. She got rejected by him. The supernatural stuff is scaring her, which is a very realistic reaction. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, something I mentioned in my notes is when you see something traumatic. Now, I'm not going to delve into this too much. Um, for those of you that don't know, I am a mental health professional. I have worked in domestic shelter, uh, violence shelters. I've worked in homeless shelters. I've run crisis hotlines. I have seen some things and I have navigated some situations that people really shouldn't have to. And I remember in the moment, you handle it, you process it, you get through the crisis, and afterwards, you fucking go cry in a parking lot. <laughs> you you break down, you process, it, it just, her saying after all that, I need to process this, I am not okay with it, was very realistic. Her being active during the event, her being there and present and dealing with the crisis, very realistic. Breaking down after, very realistic. I love how they handled this because she talks to Masha and processes all this stuff. And she says, I don't hate him, but this is a lot. This is <laughs> when you when you see something in your life that isn't supposed to be there. It, it can make you freeze. It can, fight and flight is very real. I, I love how she handled this. And I love how she handled the conversation with Masha. Yes. Would you like to talk about what happens after the conversation? So, I do want to say, um, after the conversation with Masha, Evie is originally going to go bash. Yes. However, she has that second thought of, essentially, I can't leave him. Yeah. Like, he is in this dangerous situation. What kind of friend would I be if I left him? And after that happens, a whole lot of things occur. Um, <laughs> it made me love the book so much more. Yes. Well, let me see. I have, I have so many tabs in this area. Um girl to stuff a whole post-it note in that bitch i swear yeah so page. essentially she goes and like her and misha talk again um because she decides not to leave she was going to leave and she decides not to and they talk and um he says nobody's going to notice if a bunch of drunk people in the club are a little hornier than usual and i can let out some of the storm within me safely Evie's mind is still lagging 30 seconds behind. What did he mean I could have lost control with you? And then, like, so that's kind of, like, the issue. Like, he is saying I could have lost control with you. And she's saying, I don't understand that. Like, what do you mean? And they have a moment uh, where he shows her exactly what he can do. And that's a little bit before I think she chooses to go home. But this is outside the club, so... Then she goes to bed and then wakes and up and then the talk with Masha yeah. happens. Yeah. Um, so I, I do just want to read this, though. The tiny part of her brain that is still capable of rational thought can't believe that she's sparking up like a firecracker with all her clothes on in a dirty alley next to the shitty EDM club. But she is, and it's so much. Wave after wave of arousal building within her. She starts shaking, her knees buckling under her. Her foot slips and she slides down the rough wall. Misha's arm slips around her waist, supporting her, pulling her up off the rough, cold wall into the warmth of his chest. She's biting her lip, long past the ability to do anything other than let out little kitten moans and gasps as she shudders, her clit buzzing with phantom simulations. 
her vagina wet and aching to be filled. Misha's hand lies gently on her back, over her clothes. Her head is tucked in the crook of his neck, and her whole world is warmth, his scent, and it's this, rather than his magic that tips her over the edge. She comes shatteringly hard and has to bite into the curve of his neck to keep from crying out. His other arm winds around her shoulder and rubs little circles on her back, and she shakes through her release, her legs weak, her panties wet, her eyelids a tapestry of supernovas. See, he whispers, still holding her. And God, never let me go, she thinks. It's a beautiful lie, but it's still a lie. And those strong arms hug her a little tighter. I didn't take, just gave. Don't worry. And so that's kind of where Evie and Misha are when Mancha and Misha, or Mancha and Evie have a talk. Evie knows what Misha can do. Mancha is talking about Misha. And eventually we get to the specific reveal of here. After after uh, Evie decides to stay. Yeah. And she tells Masha to get Misha. Yes. She says like, hey, go get him. I'm going to stay. I've changed my mind. I'm not flying back to Chicago, Evie says. I panicked a lot last night, but now that I've had some time to calm down, I've realized that working with Misha is what I want to do. So I'm not going. You could die. In fact, given what a disaster my brother is, you probably will die, Masha says. Everybody dies, Evie says. Masha tilts her head and hums a sarcastic little note. Almost everybody dies, Evie amends. Masha bows her head fractionally in approval. But that's another thing. No more games. No more hiding. Evie says over the brim of her coffee cup. He has to tell me everything. The truth. And so do you. I don't know. I don't even know if you're like him. She picks up the cardboard cuff of the coffee cup. I don't even really know what he is. And then... We skip forward a little. She gets up without another word, walking slowly towards the hotel room door like she's on her way to deliver bad news. At the last minute, she ducks into the bathroom instead. Evie waits, her confusion growing. She's just about to get up and see if Masha's okay when the bathroom door opens again. And Misha steps out. He sticks his hand in his pockets of his sweatpants and looks at her bashfully through his hair. So, uh, first, he mumbles, there's this. They're the same person, Masha and Misha. And like, there's hints to it earlier where like, he's wearing nail polish that she's wearing and he's like, oh yeah, she likes to practice her nails on me. There are signs, or like when they both have a scar in the same area, but then you think it's supernatural shit and they got like experimented on. Not that they're the (laughs) same. So I thought at first I was like, Misha and Masha. Yeah, they're, no, there's something going on there. And then we got to know Masha as her own character. And I was like, no, no, she's like, she's her own person. Uh, and then I had to, you guys are going to laugh at me. I'm an idiot. I had to reread that scene and be like, why was he hanging out in her bathroom? Oh. <laughs> oh. Well, and the big thing is that they had a lot of the same, like, mannerisms. But, like, siblings. They were, yeah. Siblings yeah. Like, siblings. That. Siblings yeah. had a lot of the same mannerisms. And, like, the nail polish and things like that. Yeah. And they were never seen in the same room together. But, like, at the same time, like, they had different personalities. Like, They were Misha, believably different people. Yeah, Misha presenting himself as a man and Misha presenting himself as Masha, as a woman, were very different. Like, they had similarities, but uh, Masha, for instance, was more open. She was more, she touched more. She was more engaged, Um, whereas Misha kept things closer to the chest. Um, He touched less. He was more reserved. And those differences made them feel like distinct characters. But really, it was just the differences in which the same person was displaying their own characteristics and and he um, talks about how uh that he's always felt this way but they didn't really have words for it back then 
Um, yes, I, I I have that if you like. Yeah, yeah. Although, before you announce, yes. uh, before you read from it, I do want to say one of my favorite reactions a character has ever had to mind-blowing news is she's like, wow, okay, um, what are your pronouns? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Actually, that's where I have it. That's have, so sweet. Um, okay, I, that's actually the section I have that talks more okay, about okay, this. Okay, it's the okay, pronoun okay, section. Okay. She can ask a thousand things, but when she opens her mouth, what comes out is, does it hurt? Misha blinks at her, surprised. Oh, no. He sits down on the bed a respectful distance from her and pulls his knees up to his chin. It's just a child, childish gesture. It makes him look so young all of a sudden. It doesn't feel like anything at all, actually. Can you uh, shape change? Like, is that a thing you do? Uh, Evie asks. Misha shakes his head. No, just me. Boy me and girl me. He glances over at Evie and guesses at the question in her eyes. This is the original version, he says, indicating himself. Evie's brain is still whirling, and after a moment, she realizes she's probably been staring more than is polite. So, what pronoun should I use for you? She stutters. He, him for this body, she, her for the other one, Misha says. I, I'm glad there's so many words now for the way people are. When I was figuring it out, the only words were insults or unsayable in polite company. And perhaps it is a failure of courage on my part not to adopt they, them. But I have been as I am for a very long time now, and change is hard after a while. The hint of a smile plays at the corner of his mouth as he traces a finger in lazy figure eights on the bed sheets. Evie nods. Okay, uh, cool. Haven't been misgendering you. That's good. Um, so why do you go out and bring me coffee when you don't even eat or drink like a human? I'm trying to be nice, Evie. Misha frowns at her. And I like the smell. <laughs> it's so freaking amazing that we yeah. have a love interest be gender fluid and mm. it be a genuine expression and not a fetish. Yes. 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 Like that. Yes. Misha states that sometimes he just wakes up and feels like a girl. Yeah. And sometimes he wakes up and feels like a boy. And he specifically says that, like, he's not sure if other incubi can do this. It may just be a him thing or a they thing because he was always like this. You know, back in the early, the late 1800s, early 1900s, he felt like this as well. He just couldn't manifest it. And then once he gained the incubus abilities, it was a thing. He just woke up one day and felt... I feel like a girl. And he was. Masha. And like, yep. there's so many, when you reread, there's so many hints to this. Like, yes. um, when she, uh, when Evie rescues Masha from the event and the only thing she has that fits Masha, because she's very tall, I understand, I'm a tall bitch, is a Snorlax onesie. <laughs> yes. She she later asks Masha to send a, a reaction of Misha seeing her wear that. Like, take a picture of him. She sends a picture of him wearing it. Yep. Yeah. Instead. Not, <laughs> not, yeah. not of a reaction, but him wearing it. And they're, they're the same person. They're... When I read that, I was mind blown. Uh, and I that was one of my favorite moments in the book. I absolutely love how she handled that. Well, and for me, this was my second time reading. So I was really interested to see how you two, how you called it. Like, if you called it, like, because there are a lot of hints along the way. No, like, the same, no, not the a same bit. nail polish, never seeing them together in a room, no. you know, like, I, the same mannerisms, you I, know. I genuinely thought she was similar to him. Yeah. I, I thought that, like, they were twins who were experimented on through, like, some occult stuff. And, like, yeah. that's why they both have the scar there. I, in no way, 
predicted that. Like I say, I thought at first I was like, okay, I actually, she threw me off the scent of it. Because I was kind of like, okay, weird. Uh, but yeah, no, she, it was excellently done. Very good. And like, I think because Misha yeah. felt like, or Masha felt like so much of a separate person. Mm-hmm. Like they had a lot of similarities, but they were different enough that you're like, this isn't just the same person. Like, no. Well, and also, um, so I have a lot of trans people and gender fluid people I'm very close to. When they mask present, there are more mannerisms that are accepted for yeah. that. But when they femme present, there are more mannerisms that are more accepted that way. So I, I wouldn't say that they're different people, but rather the same person being able to express themselves in a different manner freely and safely and healthily and uh like like when you have a trans individual who experiences dysphoria versus a day they experience euphoria uh you may see different characteristics or voice differences they're they're still them they just are able to express themselves in a different manner uh like a coin with two different sides it's still the same coin it's still the same currency you're just heads or tails, you know? Uh, well, and I would say kind of piggy backing off of that, yeah. that one of the main differences between Masha and Misha is that Masha was more hands-on. She touched more. Yes. She was um, more she, femme. Yeah. More femme. She touched. She engaged more, which are things that are more commonly accepted from a woman versus yes. from a man. And so that wasn't so much a difference in their character as Misha feeling comfortable. Mm-hmm expressing those things as Masha being Mm -hmm. able to be more touchy, be more feely, Mm -hmm. be more open as a woman than as a man, which is expected to be more stoic and less connected. Yeah. So I'm very glad we had the gender discussion, but do you know what it's time for? What's it time for? The fucking. The fucking. So after, yeah, after the acceptance and everything's laid out on the table, more different laying out on the table. (laughs) Hey, yo, laying out on the bed. I I do want to say, I'm really glad they, like, talk to each other and establish, like, what is going on before they decide the fuck. But I, like, I do have my rant. This is the yes. one issue I've had with this whole book. Okay. Do you want to go before I talk about the fucking rant? Yes. Get, are you going to read it? I'm going to read it. Yeah, sure. Real quick. I don't know if it's in this instance. There is a term... I see so often in romance novels. I don't know about fan fiction, but romance novels? Oh my God, I'm so tired. Is it See You Next Tuesday? No. It's okay. Velvet Covered Steel. Uh, I yes, 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 am yes. so done with that description for a man's dick. I'm so done. I'm so tired of reading Velvet Covered Steel. Like, God damn. Uh, this is my one fair, thing. fair, and I understand it's so hard for a writer. Like I, I'm not, I'm not mad at you, Alex. I'm still one of your biggest fans, but I'm so done. <laughs> it's my one rant. It's my Engorged one thing. member. Engorged member. And I was so proud of her because she actually used the word vagina, and I was like, oh, yeah. all right. And then I see velvet covered steel. Yeah. So. 
I've never really run into that in fanfic, so you might find a home in fanfic that way, Roxy. I might. I might. And I, I don't know if it's during this instance or the later instances, because there are several instances. But I just there's Yeah, there's about two chapters of straight fucking. Yeah. Straight fucking. Literally. Yeah, take take us away, Mixie. Evie groans and plants her face into the pillow, because whatever look Misha's giving her, she doesn't want to see it. Why did you also have to be funny and goofy and shy, she says, her voice muffled by the pillowcase. She lifts her head up and narrows her eyes at Misha, who is looking at her with a strange intensity. This would be so much easier if you were a little more of a jerk, and I... But she never finishes her sentence because Misha surges forward and shuts her up with a kiss. She whines as he breaks it off, but he's still right there, staring into her eyes, his lips barely an inch from hers. No, Evie, he murmurs. People look and want, but all they care about is the surface. Nobody bothers to see me. And then his lips are on hers again, soft and strong and warm. Nobody except you. He whispers into her mouth. Evie opens her lips to respond, and Misha licks into her mouth, tasting and pushing in the kiss into more passionate territory. And she kisses back, hard, all the frustrated hunger of the past week exploding into heat within her. She ends up on her back, Misha above her, one of his large, strong hands curled around the back of her neck to support her head. Her hands find their way under his shirt to his bare waist, still unsure, still not believing she actually gets to touch. As her hands wrap around the sleek expanse of muscle above his hip, his skin like satin velvet over steel, Misha moans and pushes away from her. He looks down at her, naked with desire in his darkening eyes, and even wants nothing more than to see if she can make him moan like that again. She runs one hand up aside, dragging her nails gently over the skin and is rewarded with a hiss and a push into her touch. Then just as she is about to run her fingers over one of his nipples, he captures her wrist and pushes her arm over her head. And that's, that is apparently a major turn on for her because she arches her body upward, trying to get closer. Evie, he says, and now there's a darkness at the edge of his eyes too, as he moves her other arm up over her head. I want you in a way that I haven't wanted anyone in a very long time. But he breathes leaning down, kissing and biting his way down the very sensitive skin of the side of her neck. I'll destroy you. I destroy everything I touch. Evie can barely think. Whatever Misha's doing to her neck, it's hot-wired straight to her groin, and she's panting and squirming, unable to control the sounds coming out of her mouth. And then he is gone. With what seems a superhuman effort of will, Misha releases her arm and sits back on his heels, looking at her like she is trying to mem- memorize her in that moment, the flush on her cheeks, the way her lips are parted. I don't want to pull you into my mess. And then we skip forward a little. If the price of really living is dying, then I'll take it. I'll take it. I'm so tired of the other way. She sits up and reaches around Misha to grab the hem of his shirt. And I want you so much I can't breathe. She pulls Misha's shirt off over his head, revealing acres of golden muscle and that one long, jagged scar, white, pink with age. She tosses his shirt somewhere onto the floor, and as he looks on in wonder, she presses her lips to that scar. I wanted to do this since I first saw it, she murmurs, kissing her way down the one imperfection on Misha's body, the thing that completes him. He arches his body towards her and throws his head back. His hands come up, swift and sure, unbuttoning her top and pushing it down her shoulders. Then he hooks his fingers into the waistband of her pajama pallidums, easing them down over her hips. He pulls away from her, long enough to run his hands down her legs and take her panties off completely. And then there she is, naked with the most heartbreakingly gorgeous man she's ever seen looking up at her from between her ankles, like she's the only thing he's ever wanted. Like she's beautiful. She feels like she could come just from that look alone. Misha prowls up slowly, painfully slowly, until her anticipation is so great it feels like a tangible weight in the air. He doesn't touch her, but he is so close she can feel the warmth of his body, sense of electricity between them. 
Evie bites her lip as she shifts towards him, and he moves slightly away, keeping the infinitesimal distance between them. She narrows her eyes at him, and he tilts his head, a grin tugging at the sides of his mouth. Of course, Misha would also be infuriating in bed. He darts forward and buries his tongue in her cunt. She just about screams, hands fisting around the bedclothes, as arousal slams through every muscle in her body. The sound chokes off into a ragged gasp as Misha sucks on her clit. She can feel the bastard smiling against her. She can feel the low, predatory chuckle he makes in his throat. It feels amazing. As her thigh muscles begin to quiver, he looks up at her through his lashes, his pale eyes measuring her every reaction. But there's something off. As he looks down again, his fingers spreading her labia, Evie nudges a knee against his shoulder to push him away. What, he says, concern written across his too expressive face, his lips wet with her. What's wrong? Evie is suddenly able to put a finger on what isn't right. They're performing, she admonishes. Hey, I, I just, I've never, I've never read smut aloud or had smut read aloud with my friends. And my inappropriate response is usually to laugh or hide. <laughs> and she did both. I can read smut aloud with no qualms. Really? I didn't know that, correct? <laughs> That's why this podcast is happening. <laughs> Corinne, I forget. Are you an air sign or a fire sign? Fire sign. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm a Leo. Apparently, I don't act much like a Leo, but I do have, I think, the confidence. Yes. You're, yeah, you're a Leo. <laughs> You're Leo. I am very well, much a Virgo. Some of my favorite people in the world are Leos. So I'm a Scorpio, so I am unaffected. Also, I... we discovered I look like a mime. Yeah, we were we were talking in DMs about how Andy looks like a mime and we didn't realize it. You do kind of look like a mime now that you mention it. Like nope. can, can we get some mime moves? Can we get like a like a it mime out pushing on a box or climbing up a rope. It's it's very much Scorpio and a Leo talks about with a Virgo, and I just I just need to I'll get used to it eventually. Like maybe in season two of the podcast, I'll get used to it. But you know, I do actually want to address something in that reading where she stops him and says, "You're performing. You're not genuinely." You know, you're pull, you're pulling a little magic Mike Chippendales over here, honey. You're not in the, you know, in the actual, moment, in the moment, in the actual emotional vulnerability. You're showing off, and she calls him out, which I love. Yeah. Yes. Also, I have to admit, it's all written very well. Some of the some of the best scenes I've ever read, but the part where the part where he like surprises her with like going to the to the downstairs bit um correct me up non-consensual anal play no <laughs> in both books yeah, yeah what's up well, with all the I, books thought, I thought the non-consensual anal play actually occurred with with Evie and Misha, yeah, she but, stuck a finger up his butt. What yeah, the- <laughs> but to be clear, he did seem very into it, and also he does not have any normal human bodily functions, so no standard prep needed. We are delving too far into this, just like she did. Yes, <laughs> um, because it is stated that he does not cry, he does not bleed, he does not eat, he does not sleep, so he does not shit either. So. <laughs> 
<laughs> the only thing we know he does is come. As a germaphobe, though, I appreciate that so much because I think yeah. that's what pulled me out of the anal scene from Dragon Queen so bad. Yeah. Because I'm like, sheesh. <laughs> yeah, and here I think the only actual anal play that occurs is specifically Evie on Misha, and Misha does not have human bodily functions. Yep. So that S is only for but, pleasure. But it yep. just made me crack up so hard of him, like, just suddenly appearing down there and he was <laughs> in there, like the supernatural speed, <laughs> like a pop up book. Death in the bag. <laughs> Not a pop-up oh, book. Damn damn it. Oh. Oh, pop-up book sex. Uh, brought to you by oh, no, 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 no. Do we have no, another no. name for this episode? Pop-up <laughs> book sex. Um, okay, so we do we do get some more. Um we specifically get a little bit of backstory here where uh, Misha does explain that he's not a lust demon. Like, he he actually feeds off of any strong emotions. It's just, you know, sex is kind of an easy one. Um, and that he was always basically a bit of a horn dog. Um, <laughs> but, um, oh, go ahead. We discover it does not fundamentally change you. Like, you look the same, you have the same... Um, Mannerisms. Yeah, you're sex still drive. the same person. Yeah. 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 So um, you're still the same person. You're just immortal and you stronger and feed off sex and, and emotions instead of food. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're essentially the same person that you were. You're just a little bit Basically like Colin Robinson and what we do in the shadows. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah. Why is this the second time we've mentioned Colin Robinson in that I, many episodes? I'm pretty sure we've mentioned Colin Robinson both times. Is he the true sex appeal of the romance novel industry? You are in timeout. I, no, no. Uh, timeout. You're in timeout, ma'am. Um, we, we're, we're, the mans are voting. One ma'am is in timeout. Worth it. <laughs> okay. Just, so he specifically says that... Um, he is basically performing because he's not really sure how to remember. He doesn't really know how not to perform at this point. He has essentially been a sex worker for about a hundred years um, in so many words. You know, uh, before he started this agency, he was a, a high, high class escort. He uh, then started working in this business where a lot of his work is seducing his clients like performing sexuality has been his fucking deal for a really long time and he's not sure how to be emotionally vulnerable i love that so she says uh yeah i get the feeling you're a fast learner though honestly i'm sure you could just hold me all morning it would still be the best time i ever had in bed it's not a lie. Misha doesn't need to know how shitty most of her experiences have been, Evie thinks. Drunk sex, sex where the boy finishes and that's it, leaving her sweaty and discontent. Sex where the boy did make an effort, but it was so boring that she faked an orgasm just to get him to stop. And boy, can that's a thing. <laughs> and then he calls her confusing. And let's see. Um, Evie decides that they're going to do a lot more than cover. Um, Do we want some some more fucking? We don't, we don't go read all all the fucking we don't gotta do we want to read where he loses control sure yeah. 
He circles a hand behind her neck and lifts her head up, kissing her deeply and filthily as he snaps his hips into her. She's so close, and as his mouth moves down the tender skin of her neck and the kisses turn into bites and into marks, branding her as his, she falls over the edge into the bright abyss. She cries out, ragged and undone, as her body jerks like a live wire, clenching down on him as a thousand volts of pleasure spark off in her cunt and race up her spine, leaving her mouth in a rough moan of his name. When she comes back to herself, still all floaty and full of sparks, Misha is letting her down onto the bed gently. He's still hard in her, but he withdraws, giving her a chance to rest knowing she'll be hypersensitive. She tries to press a kiss to, in, of thanks into the crook of his neck, but misses and giggles to herself. She's still so much in the afterglow that it feels like the room is full of static electricity, an ionic charge heavy in the air around her that is causing the hairs in the back of her neck to stand up. She has so many things she wants to say, ideas about what they can do next, but the words die in her throat as she looks at Misha. His eyes are completely black, and she realizes he hasn't stopped because of her. He's got his free hand gripped hard around the base of his cock, and he's moving away from her very slowly and carefully, like she's an unexploded bomb. Or more accurately, like he is. Evie reaches out on instinct to, to comfort him, to find out what's wrong, but Misha flinches away, an expression of absolute terror on his face. That's when Evie's cell phone rings, cutting through the charged air between them like a falling knife. Hot damn! <laughs> oh, uh, I will say, I love that we are constantly reminded that he cares about her and is trying to hold back and put in boundaries. And like, I hate that I'm referencing Twilight again. I but was I, going to, yeah, so I'm glad you did. Yeah, we're not. You know what? You go ahead. You go ahead. Uh, I, he cares about her without being a fucking dick about it. Yeah. yeah like Edward yeah. like kept her in the dark and just said, I don't want to hurt you. And then left it at that. He didn't explain things. He yeah. didn't like... Um, and I will warn y'all, I, I loved Twilight in high school. Like, so I'm not I'm not shitting on it to be mean. Just there's a difference between what you read when you're younger and then as you're a mature adult and you're like, yeah. you need to have conversations and explain things and not just make someone feel like they're shit. Uh, yeah. You need to explain why you have these boundaries and um, like not keep them in the dark. And I, I love that he does that with her and he like holds himself back and he really emphasizes uh not just taking you know yeah um yeah he does not want to have that kind of relationship with her and he specifies that the reason he's stopping himself is because either he might accidentally kill her which <laughs> he doesn't want to do or he's going to give the entire hotel the best orgasm of their life and that would draw too much attention <laughs> love to be at that hotel that's a yeah. book trip advisor real quick <laughs> The fact that they actually talk about it, like, it's not just this thing that's, like, he pulls away and she doesn't know why. And then, like, he leaves. And she internalizes and... it and thinks there's something yeah. wrong with her. Yeah, He's yeah. like, this is why. <laughs> yeah. He's like, no, no, no. This is what's going on. I I got a lot of juice last night. A lot of that magic juice. And I'm still fucking feeling it. Well, oh. And also, he explains why giving everyone in the hotel an orgasm would be a bad idea. Besides, yeah. you know... Consent reasons. Fucking, they'll all fucking be at the continental breakfast getting those weird powdery scrambled eggs and then just jizz everywhere. Um, <laughs> God damn it. He also says he stresses that there are people hunting people like him down because yeah. news of the book has gotten around because they idiotically posted it on like social media. And he's like, if this happens, these priests who are hunting me down. Oh, 50 people at a hotel have an orgasm at the same time. That's kind of weird. Yeah. 
He gives really sound reasons for being like, there's a reason I'm holding back. Yeah, um, he, he explains literally everything. And it's like, what the shit? I'm not used to this. Can, can I talk about my favorite non-Twilight, like the my favorite Twilight switch? Yeah. Yes, yes, go. There's a point while they're fucking where he talks about submitting to her mm-hmm. in regards to sex. And chase your bliss, do what you want to do, be whatever position that is comfortable for you, right? But I found that so empowering as a reader and like, like being in like Evie's perspective because we're in Evie's perspective throughout the whole book and it's it's kind of like he is very careful with her but he's also very honest about what he wants and how often do you hear about submissive men outside of you know MLM yeah right yeah it's, it's usually it's treated as like a taboo yeah yeah and and I was just like that's I was like oh that's so nice yeah he specifically was like hey how about next time I I'd be your I'd be your sub, you know, like you can tell me what to do. And like it's like very much like a hey, yeah, I'm I'm down for that. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, I didn't know I wanted that till right now. Yeah, literally well, this moment when you mentioned it. <laughs> and later, after they do the do, unless you want to talk Mountain more Dew? about God damn it. <laughs> I don't wanna I don't wanna skip too far ahead. Okay, okay. So after they they do the deed. They decide to go on this very cute little date, and Misha is Masha. Mm-hmm. And this is where the book gets really good. Uh, and makes me mad. There's no sequel. She she kisses Masha, uh, and they explore uh, a bit of uh, that. And it's gay, folks. <laughs> yeah, they go on the date oh. as Masha and Evie, and it's so cute. It yep. is, and it's very romantic. It's not like besties. It is. Yeah, it, no, it is. They are holding hands. They are kissing. They are yep. arm over shoulder. Like it is. They are fucking dating, She's and nice. it is. It's very nice. It's like really lovely by think- rep, and like. Evie specifically talks about the fact that she'd maybe consider the fact that she had bu- she was bi in the past, but she never wanted to be that shitty girl who thought maybe she was bi, experimented with someone, and broke their heart and realized she wasn't bi. So because, she'd never done it before. Because her roommate, Claudia, is yeah. a lesbian and yeah. has told her just horror stories. And she's like, I don't mm-hmm. want to do that to anyone. Yeah, um, and so, like, she'd had those thoughts, but n- hadn't explored them because she didn't want to hurt anybody. Yeah. Like. Now, I will say that that does kind of delve into a, like, toxic viewpoint I've heard in the queer community around yeah. by people. Yeah. They assume that we're all, you know, going to be, we're going to commit adultery. Yeah. Um, they assume that we're going to be, you know, slutty and yeah. cheaty and, you know, hearing, in my experience, a lot of the fear around WLW relationships is, you know, a lesbian and a bisexual. Obviously, this is not every situation. But there's there's a stereotype. It's like, oh, she'll just decide. She'll break up with me for a dude, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's kind of like. Yeah. It's sweet where Evie's coming from. Absolutely. And, like, it's a real lived-in experience that people have. I just was kind of like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and you kind of, you do understand where Claudia is coming from. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's like Claudia probably had that happen to her or definitely had that happen to her. And it's like, you know, Evie was trying to be 
conscientious of the fact that while she may have these feelings, she didn't want to hurt anybody. And like, she didn't want to experiment with someone and then they yeah. had feelings. And it's just, yeah. yeah. Just don't be a dick. I think yeah. that's the moral of the story. Yeah. I think the moral of the story is don't be a dick. If you are experimenting with someone, please tell them. Yeah. <laughs> But in this case, it was the perfect scenario because she could experiment and not hurt anybody because it's the same person. Yep. <laughs> so. so they go out, uh, have a little dinner date. And all hell breaks loose. Yep. The news breaks. <laughs> uh, we discover that Nicole, the little twat she is, uh, has broken the story. And she has not written it the way Evie had hoped, but it is a rather around the business that Misha has mm-hmm. uh, where they break up couples to help their divorce process. And it is messy and it is just heartbreaking. And of course, Misha basically runs away because Misha talks a lot about how he is not a very vulnerable gets in relationships with people kind of person. And he hints back at when he first turned, he did it to stay with someone he loved. Uh, And he talks about this guy who was a priest he fell in love with 100 years ago who was immortal. And he wanted to live with him forever. And he went through the process. And then they ended up breaking up and it just being awful. And he hasn't loved since. And he's... He's never given so much of himself to someone since then. And then he discovers, because it had to have been Nicole. uh, It had to have been Evie who reached out to Nicole. Yeah. Because the only two people who could have heard about, heard the conversations that were heard were Gemma or Evie. And Evie's the only one who had those connections. Yeah. And she gets a call. She, uh, Abby reaches out to her and says that, you're basically going to get sued because uh, she signed like an NDA when she took on the job. It just everything falls to pieces. Uh, yes. And this is the liar revealed that you hated. And I was like, it'll be OK. Push through it. It's not very long. Um, it is a quick resolve. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's less of a resolve and more of a put off until later kind of a thing. Yeah, like- yeah. It's put off until later, and then later we get the resolve, and the resolve is, it's fine. Yeah. (laughs) It was probably for the best. (laughs) So so she ends up going to the airport, because she's like, oh, guess I'll go face the music. I mean, might as well own up to my mistakes. And while she's waiting in the airport, she sees a few priests, and they match the descriptions he's given her, and she's like, oh, my God, they've seen the news. They've seen his face. They've seen the book. They know what's going on. I have to try and let them know he is a good person and yeah. not to kill him. And we come across one of my favorite characters. Yes. <laughs> Kevin. <laughs> so I had to check. There's a character named Kevin who's an Asian American kid, like 17 year old, like that has that sense of humor in Supernatural. And I was like, if this bitch. Yeah. If this bitch brought in Kevin Tran right now, I'm going to have a problem. She didn't. So, but, so, sorry. So, and something I love uh, about like subverting tropes is they actually listen to her and they're like, yeah. oh, 
okay, come back okay. to our place. We'll hear your case. All right, let's chat yeah. about it. And like, there's people who like, some of them are like, I'm listening. Other ones are like, I don't believe you. Yeah. But like, the, the consensus is we'll talk to you, you know? Yeah, they like, actually hear her yeah. out. And yeah. they're like, all right, okay. I mean, well, you're the best lead we got right now. So we're going to talk to you at least. Uh, and you, they all have like different personalities. They're all very um, distinct. Kevin is the best freaking thing there. <laughs> my son. I've adopted him. <laughs> yeah. Um, basically, Kevin is just like constantly making jokes in the background. Like he is not taking this shit seriously it's... at all. Well, he's like the American rest of these guys one. are like Catholic <laughs> priests, and like Kevin's there, like in the robes, like making jokes and giggling like when shit's funny and it's like just was a fresh breath of air you know he played off very well with some of the priests who were more stoic Um, i feel like we needed kevin to like keep the atmosphere fun because like that entire like segment could have been a slog yeah like having kevin there was like yeah no kevin so it humanized people who are sometimes put in these positions of power that do genuinely want to help Yes. Like, so often we hear about corruption and cruelty uh, when there are folks out there who just genuinely are delightful and are just trying to make the world a better place, uh, but they are unfortunately in a position of authority, which can come with its own challenges and hurdles. <laughs> uh, so she goes before them, lays out the whole case, recognizes that one of them is a bit different from the others. A little bit different. So to, to speed run this section just a little bit, there's a character named Pavel that is the immortal priest lover of Misha from back and back and back. And he is the first priest to truly be like, all right, let's fucking, we're going to fix it for him, right? Like, we're going we're gonna to help this situation. Also, because Pavel wants to believe that Misha is the same person. Yes. Yeah. And Evie's like, he is. Yeah. Um, also, total aside... The main priest is named Adonis, and I totally pictured Idris Elba. Yeah, I did picture yeah. picture Idris Elba. Yes. Yes. It was yes. Idris Elba. Yeah, if this is ever um, a movie. It needs it's to Idris be Elba. him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like this book is too gay to be a movie. Um, uh, like, unfortunately, unfortunately. Listen, um, I'm a millennial who's getting money. Listen, I'm yeah. a, I'm a demographic. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe maybe a studio uh, like A twenty three or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, whoever made the Green Knight, maybe they'll make it. Um, Somebody. Uh, but we Pick it up. we discover yeah. that the one who just is a bit too still, it doesn't breathe as much as the other does, is him. Yeah. That is that is Misha's lover, who is an immortal and is working with the priests um, as a priest himself to hunt down abominations. Apparently, there are all sorts of different creatures, uh, and there's a whole implied world, which is why I need a part two. But anyway, <laughs> I, if it's okay, I do have a part I want to read that makes yes, genuinely. Yes, go for laugh. it. Go yeah. for it. I'd like to speak with Miss Cross. Pavel says alone. He's leaning against the fireplace, his arms crossed. Evie looks at him, really looks, and he's thicker than Misha, especially through the waist and thighs, all power to Misha's dancer's grace. I think we came here for a mission, two missions, and we shouldn't get distracted from them, George says. That's another one of the priests. I think that there's a really good story here, and you are going to have to bodily throw me out of this room to keep me from hearing it, says Grins Kevin. Whatever you have to discuss, you can do it in front of us, the Cardinal declares, Idris Elba declares, 
in a tone that doesn't invite discussion. A rough imperiousness colors. Did I say that right? Yeah, imperiousness colors Pavel's voice when he next speaks. I work with the Secretariat as a favor, Adonis. I warned you when you were appointed Shadow Cardinal that there may be things I cannot or will not explain to you. That's okay. I'm happy to explain, Evie says. He's a <laughs> shitbag who dumped his boyfriend a hundred years ago after said boyfriend made the world's most epic sacrifice for him. That's not, begins Pavel. This is the greatest day of my life, Kevin breathes. <laughs> that, like, it's a very serious, we get into a yeah. serious lore drop, but... God, Kevin is the best. Yeah, Kevin be like, like, I'm here for this. I feel like <laughs> Kevin is the audience. Yeah, yeah. like the audience like, standing, you know. Tea? <laughs> Tell us, please. But uh, we discover more of his backstory. We just, it's it's absolutely amazing and heartbreaking and gay. Very gay. gay. Yes, very gay. It's gay uh, and wonderful and sad. Um, I feel like we do have to skip to the the crux of the story. Was there anything else, Roxy? I do have to say, uh, and we mentioned this in the content warnings, that there are allusions to uh, non-consensual acts. I know I'm backtracking a bit, but Gemma hints at, in her previous workplace, that she was assaulted. We discover that Misha was assaulted as well uh, when he was immortal, and you don't you don't get experience you don't get examples of that in media. Men being assaulted is just not it's not covered at all, and it's it's heartbreaking because they do. And for the main love interest, the one who's like the pinnacle of masculinity. Has the nice car, gets all the people, you know, dresses nice, has tons of money. For them to to address that in his backstory, I don't love that it happened to the character, but I love that it was talked about. Uh, and it was alluded to in a very gentle way. Well, um, and yeah, I would say in the very beginning, um, when uh, Misha is talking about how he handles these cases that he takes... Misha looks down, his voice quiet and rough. I want you to remember something, Evie. I break up marriages for money, but I ruin abusers for free. Yup. Yup. The fact that he was abused by somebody yep. in power, it was somebody who was in uh, the military with him, somebody that sought to use him because he was beautiful and because they were in a position of power where they could do so. And that's where he found Pavel was after he escaped essentially and needed somewhere to stay and um, pavel addresses how that abuser was killed uh yes. a week after i think that uh misha had turned immortal and found out how to and i'm just like i mean i ain't no snitch <laughs> listen that's the best part of the twilight series Okay. Rosalie. Oh my God. Rosalie. Girl, I need a yes. book on just Rosalie. I need. <sighs> How familiar are you, Corinne, with Rosalie's story? Uh, fairly, but I've forgotten. I know something about a marriage. Yes. Yeah. Go ahead, Roxy. So I'm going to put in very gentle terms. Yes. Yeah. Um, Rosalie is engaged to be married. And then her soon-to-be husband and his friends drunkenly assault her oh yes uh, yes, yes. yes and yeah. she is discovered 
being close to death, Carlisle brings her back to life. Yeah. And she kills all of them violently while wearing what would have been her wedding dress. And it's just yes. like, and she, she says in the book, I think it was something like, I used to have a flair for the dramatics back then. And I'm just like, girl, girl. <laughs> I don't love it when that happens to characters and that's treated as a character building thing, right? Yeah. That's something arguably Stephanie Meyer did. Yeah. However, <laughs> also, Rosalie's like their mechanic and drives sports yeah. cars and is a yeah. badass. I didn't mean for this to turn into a Twilight episode, but it's God, very it's similar in vibe yeah. to Twilight and Fifty similar. Shades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's a supernatural got some, love story. Yeah, it's a supernatural love story. It has some notes. Um, so we we discover a lot about Misha. Yeah, yeah we learn about him. a lot about Misha, and then. Edie is on her way uh, back to, um, I, I think she's attending to go back to Chicago. Like, I think she's going to the airport. Looking at hotels to try to find me. Oh, yeah. Looking at hotels. That's what she's doing. She's looking at hotels. I read it this morning. Yeah. And she <laughs> got in an Uber, an Uber pool to uh, go to one of the hotels she was going to check. Dumbass. Yeah. And that Uber pool was not good. Um, she is kidnapped by uh, Celine Overstreet. Uh, because Eric Overstreet died. Um, there was a question of whether Misha had killed him. He didn't think he did. It turns out Celine did. Celine did that killing because Celine was not the helpless woman that she had been portrayed to be. She wasn't just the wife. She was um, intelligent in her own right. She was the one who was actually into the occult. She was the one who was doing this studying. She was the one who wanted to make herself immortal and beautiful forever so that she couldn't be tossed away. Um, and there are hints to this because, yes. like, when they're talking about the book and they're reading the article, mm-hmm. it's like tech billionaire's wife usually maintains library for him out of love, yeah. and it's like yeah. all these allusions to her actually being the one who discovered this book, cares about it, and wants to be the immortal one. And also, so they are the tech moguls of something called yes. Star something Star Tech Star Tech. They're and Apple. While she is, before she is kidnapped by them, her phone goes to update and there's like an accept or decline and she declines it because updates take like half an hour and, and she needs her phone for him. Yeah, to call yeah. her. And we find out that it was this fucking hussy who wanted to turn into what Misha is. Misha discovers through the book that not only do you have to like basically make a deal with the devil, it's it's really called the nothing, which holy shit. We'll talk about that later. Yeah, um, I have a whole thing about this description. It is amazing. It I is love amazing. It. One of my favorite yeah. de- decryp- uh, dis- descriptions. descriptions. <laughs> Listen. Uh, ever of a supernatural entity. But we discover she plans on sacrificing all the people who accepted the terms and conditions and all going, the souls yeah, 50 it, it million. comes down to not reading the terms and conditions on the update on your fucking oh. cell phone <laughs> and it is like and that's how she found evie is because evie had a star tech phone and yep, she was able yep. to track her so yeah. she's kidnapped she discovers this whole plan uh, sees the poor girl that was ball gagged, that was the guy's mistress before he yeah. was killed, is there as well. And she plans on sacrificing both of them. 
And Evie is discovered because of their camera footage when they go in there to steal the book. Yeah. Um, do you, do you want to do you want to go ahead? Is there something you wanted to read or? Oh, I just I just have the nothingness. Okay. Um, okay. So if you have anything so, else, I'm ready for the nothingness. Okay. Okay. So if you'll remember, there's that thing where I was like, remember this for later. It's a mouse tool that will help us later. <laughs> you can see, or Andy's house can see into the windows of yes. the Overstreet's bedroom. So she goes to leave a message on the window because she is she's kind of thinking that Misha's trying to get some of the energy out with Andy and that he'll see it. And that, like, he's hoping to spy on the Overstreet's from Andy's house, knowing that you can see into the Overstreet's house from Andy's house. Remember, yeah. Andy's the guy who said he wanted to ride him like the Pony Express and then <laughs> yes. he fell over in his chair. Yes. Yeah. Not me. I, though I would. But not me. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, and- she, she runs in there. She writes on the window, leaves a message. Hey, I'm here. Rescue us, please. You know. Go, go ahead, Andy. Go ahead. Uh, she's interrupted leaving the message. They take her and the poor ball gag girl. She's never given a name. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. Ball uh, gag girl. Ball girl. Go- <laughs> blah, blah, blah. BG. That's a ball gag girl. Damn <laughs> So they take him to the roof and they start the process. And the sacrifice. The sacrifice. I was kind of surprised by this. Alex DeCampi does a really good job describing viscera. Yeah. Yes, she does. So they start the sacrifice by taking BG and stabbing her and essentially gutting her. Yeah. Like her intestines fall out. Slip yeah. out. They yeah. slip, slip out. out. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it's described. It, <laughs> Very descriptive. That's why there's a content warning for blood and gore. <laughs> yes. But I was like, God damn, okay. In the sex book. Yeah. Two of the most descriptive things. The fashion and the art, <laughs> and then the gore, the evisceration, yeah, the ball gag girl. And after that um, sacrifice occurs, uh, Evie gets stabbed as well, but she is interrupted because Celine senses the presence of the nothingness, and here we have that. She stops with a sharp, barked fricative, and her eyes search the roof guard, and the knife gleams dully in her hand. Show yourself, she commands. The sudden English crashes loud against the hard surfaces of the rocks, the only sound for miles. Then Celine's eyes fix on a point behind Evie. Evie turns as best she can, and there's nothing there. No, that's not right. There's a nothingness there. It's, a, it's as if a part of the sky has been removed, leaving an utter and complete void in the shape of a man. The air feels ionized, pregnant with a furious storm. But there's no lightning, nothing flashy, just a figure from which no light emerges or reflects. Wisps of darkness waft off its body, poisoning the air around it to a dull, warped gray. Longer tendrils stream off its head, like antlers clawing at the shattered sky. Selena's staring right at it, her eyes bright with the sort of madness that the nearness of desire brings. I have 50 million souls in my power, Selene says, her voice soft now and sugary, the voice of a pretty girl used, used to asking for favors, used to getting them. Then she indicates to Evie and the girl with the sweep of her strange wavy knife, and the living blood of these two to spill for you, plus my own heart. Will you accept my sacrifice? Small note, I really love the literary description of the nothing, as we've established. Mm-hmm. All I picture is the fucking beast from... Over the garden wall. 
Yes, yes. That's the closest. Yeah, it's the my closest brain. parallel. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like, "Oh." <laughs> yeah. It um, um the only other creature in a horror setting cuz this is this is very much a horror setting in a romance novel. Yeah. Um then I have been like, "Yeah, that's what it would look like." Uh there is a movie called The Ritual and there is a beast in it. That just and it also has antlers. It 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 very much comes from it comes from like Nordic interpretations of a being that is not supposed to be there. <laughs> that's not supposed to be in your normal life. That's the only other time I have been like, did you see something? <laughs> did, you, <laughs> did you experience? Did you? Where'd you get this uh, description from? Where'd you? Uh... What have you seen, Alex? What, what in the Freddy Fazbear's have you experienced, friend? <laughs> but that's the only other time in any form of media that I've kind of stepped back and been like, mm-hmm. okay, okay, <laughs> let's go. Let's <laughs> delve into that. Okay. But yes, she, I think at this point, she cuts her heart out. Yeah, um, so uh, Celine does cut her own heart out. And then we we basically get to this point. Evie has been stabbed. She is, she she hasn't been sliced, but she has been stabbed. She has a gut wound, which is a, a death wound, really. The pain is unbelievable, ice cold and dizzying in its vastness. A roaring fills her ears and she thinks dully, oh, this is what death sounds like coming for me. But then Celine flinches, stilling the knife buried in Evie's guts. And Evie realizes that Celine hears it too. Misha's here in his loud-ass sports car, crashing through the gates. But as the pain pulls Evie into a welcoming, blissful embrace of unconsciousness, as Celine begins to cut out her own heart, all Evie can think is, he's too late. But he's not, folks, or well, he is. But he's not. Because she dies. (laughs) She does die. It's too late for her. She knows it is. And when she tries to take her next breath, she begins to choke on her own blood. It bubbles up into her mouth, hot and thick. She lives long enough to see Misha crash into Selene, his eyes black with rage, and rip her a whole arm off. No sacrifice, he growls. No deal. He takes Selene's heart and tears it to pieces with his bare hands. Her eyesight begins to fade as Selene sinks into the ground, clutching at the blood pulsing from her ragged mess of her shoulder, her face a rictus of terror and fury. When Misha reaches down to snap Selene's neck, it is merely a dim tournament of shadows, and then it is nothing at all. She lives long enough to hear the devil laugh. And then death comes for Evie Cross. But she's, she's okay, y'all. It's not the ending. <laughs> yeah. If you guys don't care, we're, I'm going to keep speed running the ending. Yes, keep... speed run it. So, nothing else is super important after this. I don't have any tabs up until I there's a laughing scene. Yeah. Basically, she dies. Um, and then she wakes up to him, like, Misha, like, crying over her. And the devil laughing and kind of, like, petting his head, like, yeah, good, good. Demon. Good boy. Good boy. Who's a good Who's a good little demon boy? You are. You are. So all the power, like we talked about with the book, all the power that Celine summoned had to go somewhere. It went into Misha. Um, so he's able to use that to bring Evie back to life, but he quickly leaves because it's too fucking much. Yeah. And he hates the goddamn devil thing. He hates the nothing, which fair fair fucking very fair evie comes back to life she spends a week with the uh, priesthood kind of in their safe house and then she goes back to new york 
meets up with Abby and Gemma, and they go through this law scene, and it's kind of like... Technically, Nicole didn't tag her on anything. Nicole took all the credits, so... Yep. Yeah. Nicole took all the credit, and something was included that Evie never mentioned. So they're able to get her on libel. Yeah. It's only libel if it's written, kids. Able to get her on libel, and Evie is kind of left with Gemma. Like, they were like, well... We have another job for you guys if you want it. So they actually keep Heartbreak Incorporated going. They keep the business going. Misha's not there, but a lot of the contractors stayed around. Uh, and the first job they have, Gemma ends up being a nanny. It's kind of sad because, like, she gets attached know. to the kids. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Six months right before Christmas, so like six months later, someone comes into the office. Misha. He's back. <laughs> He back. And they kind of like, one of the contractors kind of looks up like, hey, how do I handle it's this It's Beatrice. Who's, yeah. Who's a delightful sweetheart. We, we yeah. love her. We love Beatrice. We didn't have time to talk about her, but we yeah. love There's her. There's so many side characters we didn't get yeah. to talk about. Read They're this all book. wonderful. Read it. Yeah. Even though we've spoiled it, it's still worth the read. Yeah. It's, it's cool. He gives advice and he's like, hey, Evie, you know, let's, it's like snowy, blizzardy in New York. So he and Evie kind of go and grab a coffee and they end up just kind of talking, vibing. Help me out here. I'm having trouble remembering specifics. And, yeah. Uh, they, here. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Here. I wasn't going to come back, Misha Snipes. He's turned away from her facing the run dog run painting. Evie stops. Why did you? Someone taught me I didn't have to be alone, he replies. Got me rather addicted to being happy. His gaze drops to our wet, to his wet boots and the carpet beyond. I'm tired of running, Evie, but I'm also very bad at standing still. He turns to look at her, hands still jammed in his pockets, and it feels like an apology. How have you been doing, really? I'm good, she smiles, and she finds it's the truth. I wanted to investigate things, after all, and now I get to do that. She leans against the doorframe uh, to what used to be his office. You built something good here, and we've kept it alive. And then... Uh, the very, very sweet moment at the end. I live in Chelsea now. I was going to walk home. Misha offers his arm, and I shall escort you. He glances at her, the corner of his eyes wrinkling in amusement as he stage whispers, for there are monsters out there. Misha walks with her down 8th Avenue through silent flurries that alight on the dirty city like blessings, like the promise of a new beginning. He kisses her on the corner of 43rd Street, with the blizzard having empty Times Square, of everything but its cacophony of advertising screens here rendered indistinct and magical by the snow. I will say this book was absolutely beautiful. I really enjoyed it. It was, I need more. I genuinely need more because we didn't even mention so many side characters, so many cool yes. things that happen. Uh, there's a whole segment where she meets up with the priests and she helps Kevin with a job. And like, there's there's stuff with Beatrice. There, there's so much in here we didn't cover we really only hit the highlights, but there's still yeah. like more highlights. Like yeah. I wouldn't call them low lights. Like they're still very good. It's just yeah. we hit the peaks, and but like, there's still like, like the sides of the peaks. And like he <laughs> he kind of reunites for a brief second with his ex. So like there's yeah. there's so much stuff. But yes, we highly recommend it. I loved it way more than I thought I would, and I thought I'd like it. You know. Yeah. Um. Now I have to ask. How many mams do we rate this book? One mam is absolutely awful, and five mams is the best fucking romance novel you've ever read. What did we rate Dragon Queen? We didn't I rate think it. We did. Oh, shit. Because I didn't think of the mam scale until this episode. Oh, my God. 
I guess we could rate it now. And we, then do you want to rate Dragon Queens first? I can tack it on. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. How many ma'ams do you rate Dragon Queens? One is the absolute terrible, awful, worst thing you've ever read. Five is the best romance novel you've ever read. I'd give Dragon Queens probably like a three and a half ma'ams. That's, that's what I would do. Because I enjoyed it, but there was room for improvement, I felt. I would give Dragon Queens a three ma'ams because there were things I really enjoyed and things I very what the fucked about. That's fair. That's fair. I, I give it a four ma'ams um, basically for the same reason, uh, but I felt that the things I liked slightly outweighed the things I disliked. So I, I are around the four ma'ams out of five ma'ams. I would give this book only because I need more. Alex, if you write a sequel, I'll change it. Four and a half ma'ams. This book, uh, definitely four and a half for me. Andy? I haven't read a ton of romance books, so this is going to be like a seven ma'ams out of five. <laughs> oh, ghost. Breaking it. You can break the scale. That's fine. There's going to be seven out of five, ma'ams. There's Um, anarchy. I I give this five out of five, ma'ams. Honestly, one of the best romance novels I've ever read. I haven't read a lot of romance novels, but I enjoyed this book so much that I've read it twice, which is saying something for me. I don't don't really reread books unless I really like them. Now that we're done, are we ready to talk about the fan fiction? Let's get into fan fiction. We are. We are. I would like to start first uh, because I don't even know the name of mine. <laughs> but the fan fiction this most reminded me of, I don't think you can get it online anymore, is the one that inspired Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh, the one that was like a Twilight AU because it very much had the strings of a fancy businessman finds lady down on her luck who's smarter than you think and it brings her into a whole supernatural world and not to not to poop on this book because I genuinely enjoyed it and I think it made this genre so much better but it it smacked of it the whole you know Armani suit and tie and so much richer than me with a complex world and backstory and well, there's a reason this episode is going to be called Slutty Businessman. Yes, <laughs> he is a slutty businessman. That's the only one I could tr- genuinely think. This is it. This is this is it. I mean, yeah, that's that's a really solid pull. I and think it was called s- Fifty Shades of Grey, by the way. It, it might have been, yeah. I think it was. It, it's probably just scoured from the internet now because it got published. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's would my you say submission. this does this better or oh yeah this does it so much better like holy shit it knocks it out of the park and it's just one book and those are series and it makes me so upset Alex make us a series there's Always. an amazing world this is based in I could read a short story just about Kevin like I mean <laughs> or we didn't even mention Dimple like god dang it yeah <laughs> Well, the fact that Kevin's an FBI agent. Yeah. Kevin's an FBI agent. We're just going to glaze over that. (laughs) Read this book. There is so much in it that we didn't even cover. Yeah. There's so much. But Um, yeah, that's that's my submission for the fanfic that reminds me most of this book. Um, All right. I I know Andy's is a bit of a left field pull. Would that be correct? uh, Not for me, but in general, yes. Okay. The fanfic that I chose, um, basically... uh, 
this time I really went full Stucky because I knew that there was a plethora of Bucky in- Incubus and or demon fanfiction. It's like a thing. Is this going to be uh, every episode we do? You're going to do I told you I'm a Stucky stan. Uh, but last time it wasn't Stucky. Last time it was Bucky and Darcy, okay? I did. Uh, I don't know the... T- <laughs> one's gay. One's oh, gay, one's okay, straight. Okay, okay, D- Darcy's a lady. <laughs> okay, okay, now I know. Now I know. But this this one is also Bucky. I swear, I will I will branch out. But, like, the, the Incubus <laughs> Bucky thing is, like, a thing I know is a thing. So, like, I'm sticking to what I know. I know it's there. Yeah, and it's uh, Incubus Bucky. <laughs> yeah, it's Incubus fucking. Um... So I chose The Wolfsbane Job by uh, Cyclamental because it involved a mystery slash investigation and Steve and Bucky are working together, but it's not like a boss employee situation more of like, hey, I'm just helping you out. The summary is Bucky is a private investigator for the Fae community. His latest case is a bit of a weird one, so he pulls in his best friend Steve to help. Featuring Incubus Bucky and Werewolf Steve, very loosely inspired by a marathon of Lost Girl I watched a few months ago. That is like directly the summary. Basically, all I want to say about this is that it's only, like, it's between 4K and 5K words. Like, it is short. And so it starts with smut right out of the gate. Um, What we have here is uh, there's a weak knock at the door. Steve goes and checks the peephole, then steps back, unlatching the chain and deadbolt before opening it halfway. Bucky leans against the doorframe, hunched over and curled in on himself, hair hanging down but still not covering the cuts and bruises on his face. Steve folds his arms over his chest and looks him up and down. What happened this time? Tangled with a banshee, Bucky says, and coughs wetly. Don't worry, she's toast. Steve blocks the doorway, a solid impediment. Why are you here, Bucky? His voice is low. You know why, Bucky says, eyes cutting up through the fall of dark hair. I thought we weren't doing this anymore, Steve says, unmoved. I know, Bucky says. He sways towards Steve, touching his shoulder, fingers tracing down his arm. He gets to Steve's wrist and Steve yanks him forward, pulling him into the apartment. He slams the door and thrusts Bucky against the wall, heedless of his injuries, and attacks his mouth like a starving man. Bucky moans, in pain or pleasure or both, and arches his back against the firm threshold, hitching a leg up over Steve's hip. Steve grips his ass and hefts him up so that Bucky can wrap his both legs around him, sucking wet kisses along his jaw and down his neck to scrape his teeth on that bird-like collarbone. That's it, Steve says, voice rough, the just this side of in control. Take what you need. Basically, you weren't kidding. Goddamn. That escalated yeah. quickly. That is literally how it starts. It, it sets out right out of the gate, basically saying that Bucky is an incubus. He needs sexual energy to survive. Unlike in Heartbreak Incorporated, where it's technically any emotional energy of the strong sort. It's just sexual energy is, you know, kind of easy. Um, <laughs> and leaves you feeling less yucky um, was kind of the vibe. And then Steve and he have been best friends. Uh, So unlike, you know, in Heartbreak Incorporated, there's a history here. They've known each other. Uh, Bucky's been using Steve for this, in this nature for quite a while. Um, And it is basically implied that uh, there's a specific part here that says, the thing is, Bucky likes feeding from Steve best. There's a richness to his energy, perhaps from the werewolf part of him, perhaps something else. But it's satisfying in a way feeding from no one else is. It warms Bucky to his core, makes him feel full and sated. He tries not to think about the emotional implications of this. It also shows that Bucky has definitely caught feelings, even if he is in denial. In Heartbreak Incorporated, it takes a lot longer to get to the sexy bits and these realizations. But to be fair, the story is only 4,000 words. So, like, Heartbreak Incorporated is a whole-ass book. It's, it's um, like so, a freaking whole foreplay thing. And then yeah, at the very so end. It's like a whole thing. And this is like, no, the here's the sex. Um, and then 
we get to the story and then we only have 4,000 words for this. So like make it good. In Heartbreak Incorporated, both characters kind of seem to be a bit in denial, oblivious to the fact that they are into each other because they're both wrapped up in their own self-loathing slash negative opinions of themselves. But there seems to be a similar situation occurring in this fanfic as well. Wade opens his mouth to say something else when Bucky is rescued by Steve's sudden arrival. Hey, buddy, Steve says, leaning down to slap Bucky's back in a half hug. Am I interrupting something? He looks at Wade with a smile. Wade's gaze flicks between the two of them. No, but it looks like I'm interrupting something. He says before slowly rising to his feet and standing there awkwardly. He blinks at Steve. Steve looks back, then turns to Bucky in confusion. It's fine, Bucky says, feeling for some reason like he has to fill his uncomfortable void. There's nothing between me and Steve. We're just friends. He wills himself to stop talking. There's really no reason to volunteer his information. Steve's expression flattens and he turns to Wade. Yeah, best friends. He adds a bit menacingly. He almost appears to bristle in Wade's direction. Continued. Harsh man, Bucky says. He was just trying to be friendly. He was hitting on you, Steve replies, petulant. What? No, Bucky says, trying to peer at Wade's retreating back. Really? Steve rolls his eyes. I swear, I don't know if it's the incubus in you or your fucking thick skull. Everyone wants a piece of you, Buck. And then they proceed to team up um, because of a mystery that Bucky can't solve um, that involves the apothecary's garden. It doesn't seem like much of a case that he'd normally be on, but because the apothecary is really important to the whole fey community uh, and supernatural community, he's on it. He asks Steve to help because uh, someone keeps digging up the garden, eating shit, and literally shitting in the garden. And he's like, Steve, can, can you come? Checks this out, you're a werewolf. Steve goes and checks it out. It uh, turns out that it's Wade. No. Wade, Wade is a werewolf. Oh. Uh, and he didn't know. And then... <laughs> Spoiler alert, that's the person who shits in the garden. <laughs> and that's the person who shits in the garden. It's he Wade. would. He doesn't even he need would. to be a werewolf to do that. No, Wade he would still would. shit in the garden. Yeah. Um, Wade would. Um, Wade is Deadpool. Yeah, Deadpool. Yeah. <laughs> and then... The reveal of feeling occurs after they discover that Wade is the one who's shitting in the garden. <laughs> such a funny statement. Uh, I, seems. Oh, go ahead. No, uh, it makes me sad to hear about Captain America being mean to Wade because Wade looks up to Captain America so much. Yeah. I'm just like, oh. yeah. I, I wish. I well, it's it's a it's the whole werewolf thing. It, yeah. it in the story, Steve it's... does help Wade. Like like, hey, dude, you're a werewolf, and like. Okay. He helps him out. He helps him out. Okay. Um, it's just, he was being territorial, like, earlier. Yeah. The world but of he fan didn't... fiction is wild. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, so, the reveal of feeling. Steve comes by the night, as he often does. He lets Bucky know that Wade is adjusting as well as could be expected, and that, unfortunately, the fresh lycanthropy did not explain away his weirdness. Bucky still feels tired, but also wired, and is looking for some chamomile tea to, tea to help him wind down, when he remembers the potion Wanda gave him. Hey, Wanda wouldn't give me anything weird, would she? He asks. Steve looks up at the book from he's reading on the couch. Wanda? No, she's great. Has been helping me with werewolf-specific maladies for years. I trust her implicitly. He goes back to his book. Bucky rummages around for a mug and brews the potion. It smells wonderful. Lavender and sage and clear, cool nights. He takes a sip and closes his eyes. His mouth falls open. Oh, shit, he says. What, Steve says, looking back up. Bucky just stares at him. I love you. <laughs> Dude, I know that. Steve laughs, going back to his read. No, you don't understand, Bucky says, and moves to settle on the couch next to Steve. Mug held fast in his hands. I just realized I'm in love with you. He's gobsmacked. Why didn't he realize it before? Steve looks seriously at him. Are you sure? What the fuck was in that tea? Bucky takes another drink 
and the conviction grows stronger. Wanda said it would bring me clarity. I, I think I got a glimpse last night, and now I really see it. I've always been drawn to you. We've always been connected to each other, and I didn't realize it before, but I see it now. I love you, Steve, he says, and the smile blooms across his face. I love you. Steve looks back at Bucky, and an answering smile curves his lips. You don't know how long I've been waiting to hear you say that, Steve says. He takes the mug from Bucky's hands and places it carefully on the coffee table. He takes Bucky's empty hands and pulls him close. I know you love me, you dope. I've just been waiting for you to realize it. He leans in and kisses Bucky so sweetly. Bucky melts into the kiss, all warm-hearted affection and no lust-blinded heat, and his heart thumps hard in his chest. Steve pulls back and cradles Bucky's face in one hand. I love you too, Bucky. (laughs) That's cute. It is. It's really cute. Basically, the reveal of feeling occurs because Wanda, the person they solved the mystery for, gave Bucky some tea that will give him clarity. It's a bit of a cop-out, honestly. Uh, due to the length of the story, though, I will give it leeway. We yeah. learned that Steve knew Bucky loved him. It was just Bucky who was oblivious to things, which is a nice change of pace. Like, it wasn't both of them being, like, totally oblivious. It was just one of them. Basically, we don't really get much sex in the story, despite it being about a bit incubus and a werewolf, two supernatural creatures generally associated with horniness. But the story has a very sweet ending, and in a way, it's kind of like Heartbreak Incorporated sped up, like, just kind of, like, ugh, into, like, four to five K characters, just, like, squeezed together. Uh, on the whole, I don't think Cyclemental does a better job, but I don't necessarily think they do worse either, considering the length of the story. I just think one thing that's important to note is that uh, Alex Campy is that she is active in fandom. She's written fan fiction. She She knows this. So I feel that there is less of a discrepancy in how things are handled in her work versus when we read Dragon Queens by Kathleen DePlume and compare it to the fanfics. Like, Kathleen may be active in fandom, but I can't really confirm or deny that. Like, I I don't know. Um, And I think that we really see, like, fanfiction is even mentioned twice in um, Heartbreak Incorporated. Um, Evie reads fanfiction and, like, just the fact that it's mentioned and that, Alpha Omega fanfiction is referenced in Heartbreak Incorporated, which is like a deep dive. Like, you don't know that if you're just skimming the surface. Um, and I, so I think it's really like we we really know that when we're comparing fanfiction to a uh, DeCampy work, I, in my personal opinion, we're not really getting anything better out of fanfiction because she knows it personally in my she was there when it was written. <laughs> she knows the old the old words. She she was there. <laughs> you absolute nerds. <laughs> Shut up. All right, Andy. Well, on that note, I guess I'll just absolutely expose myself. So there are some fandoms that I like. Keep it for the patrons. Goodness. <laughs> okay, go. So I, in this particular fandom, enjoy... Like, I enter several of the ships, but one of the ones I read is OC and this character, okay? Normally, it's like a self-insert. This one isn't a self-insert, which is nice. It's like an a- she's an actual character, has an actual background. It is... This is the part I have trouble with. Okay. It is a Detroit Become Human fanfic. Okay. Okay. I picked it because the love interest is not human. The love interest is a robot that has developed sentience. That's kind of the plot of the game. Also, that they're robots developing sentience. Um, but there's a lot of through lines in that, like, there's, it's a mystery. Um, and she is, she's very much her own character. Like, she is doing a job. She just happens to meet this per, you know, meet this character. And it's just, it's kind of neat. And I didn't, I haven't even finished it all the way, actually. I was reading it a couple months ago and I was scrolling through my tabs at like two this morning, like, fuck, what fanfic? 
gonna bring and i started reading and i was like oh shit yeah this one it's like perfect it's very familiar or it's like it's it's very familiar territory to this you know less like boss employee kind of vibes but i just i enjoyed it a lot and it's that friends to lovers kind of shit that we get and i i like it i like it a lot that's all i'm i'm not gonna read anything from it like yeah that's that's what's it called though oh shit yeah it's called Bup, bup, bup. The Silver Lining Still Remains by Witchfall on AO3. Oh, I, I like that title. Yeah, like, that's nice. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's all in lowercase, as all yeah. titles, all good yeah. titles are, you know? Yeah. Oh, all the good ones. All, all the good, the good ones. ones. So, uh, are we ready to tingle? Let's I tingle, think we're bitches. Ready to tingle. I am ready to be tingled. <laughs> that's going on the patreon no all right put it in a discord cell yep i'm ready to tingle i'm ready to be tingled and now for our tingling tingler this one seemed especially appropriate since it features a bisexual cryptid working a day job the creature hands me a clipboard with a sheet of paper attached to the front of it i sign it quickly and then hand it back to him thank you the mothman replies i'll be seeing you the creature turns to leave, but I call out and stop him in, in his tracks. What's your name? I question. Indrid, the Mothman replies. Nice to meet you. I'm Cooper, I inform him, reaching out and giving the furry, muscular creature a firm handshake. The Mothman smiles and then turns once again, heading off down the front walkway with a satchel full of packages slung over his shoulder. I can't help but let my eyes linger as he goes, taking in the creature's incredibly muscular physique. He's dressed quite conservatively in a typical male carrier's uniform, but the cut of his pants hangs just right across the Mothman's perfectly toned rump. When he's finally out of sight, I turn it to head back inside, but jump in surprise when I see that my wife is standing in the foyer waiting for me. Oh, I blurt, almost dropping the package. I, I didn't see you there. You okay, Ivy questions. I nod, trying to pull myself back into reality. Yeah, I just met the new mailman. No, it's gone, my wife continues. Apparently, I reply, strolling over and handing her the package. This is for you, Ivy smiles and takes the box, then opens it immediately, tearing through the package and pulling out a brand new book. It's titled Bisexual Buckaroo, Seven Bi Group Encounters in the Tingleverse. That looks fun, I offer, taking in the gorgeous couple standing proudly on the cover between a dinosaur and Bigfoot. My wife grins mischievously. I thought we could read it together. Initially, I'd planned on keeping my powerful attraction to the Mothman mailman under wraps. Just a fleeting moment in time and nothing more. It suddenly dawns on me, however, that Ivy might be just as interested in our handsome new mailman as I am. We're an adventurous couple, after all. And if we don't have time to head out into the world and experience new things, maybe these ex new experiences can come to us. The mailman was pretty cute, I finally informed her. You would have liked him. Maybe I'll get the no door next time, Ivy offers. This excerpt is from Bisexual Mothman Mailman Makes a Special Delivery in Our Butts. Looking for the sexy bits? Well, those secrets are Chuck's and not ours, and we don't kiss and tell. You can find this book on Amazon and Kindle for two ninety nine. <laughs> All right. Thank, thank I'm you out. for tingling us. Thanks. Thanks for the tingle. I, God dang it. <laughs> I tingled you already. You sure did. Thanks for the... God Thanks for damn. tingling us, Champer Damper. You're welcome. I tingled oh. you with bisexual Mothman mail carrier. <laughs> I'm gonna go. All right. We, we, I, before we go, no, we gotta do our way. We gotta you do our outro. We gotta do our Stay for the outro. You can't. I know Chuck made you really horny, but you have to stay. 
She's so mad I can't even hear her. <laughs> All right, Psyche, are you okay? Are you okay, Roxy? Roxy, are you okay? Are you okay, Roxy? If I say yes, will you play the outro? <laughs> I will read the outro if you say yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Looking for hot content and even hotter vibes? Check out our Patreon. You can find it linked on our Twitter, WBTYMPod. You can also find us on Instagram with the same name, and we have a Facebook page, if you're into that kind of thing. Finally, we'd like to thank Incorns for our theme song and for his sage editing advice. This has been Wham Bam Thank You Ma'am. I hope we've left you thoroughly satisfied. Get flirty and stay dirty, friend.